Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, it's a bit of a two-part episode. Uh, the first part is going to be on UCLA firing Steve Alford last night and some of the replacements they might come up with here. I thought this was an interesting topic that I can kind of actually provide a little bit of detail and light on just because I live out here in LA uh, and have gotten to know some people involved with the program. Second part of the podcast will be an NBA draft, you know, year end look with Cole Zwicker. But first I've got Rob Doster to talk UCLA. Rob, how's it going, buddy? You were up late last night on the East coast. Oh yeah. I was, uh, we all heard the rumors about this probably coming down at some point over the weekend and uh, they decided to do it at, what was it? 11 o'clock your time i think is when it finally became maybe not official but when uh when the first reputable source had the information saying that it was done the decision was made and steve alford is now the former ucla head coach so i decided to go to sleep at about 135 and woke oh, up this no. morning to to a um an avalanche of notifications on my phone, which was, uh, you know, it's always good to see that at eight o'clock in the morning when you wake up leery eyed and you look at your phone, it's like, you have 47 text messages. Oh, great. So yeah, it's kind of what happened with me, except I was awake whenever the whole thing happened. Um, you and I, and me and a bunch of other people and, you know, throughout the day you were getting text messages saying like, Hey, there's a real chance this happens today. Um, I am unsurprised that this happened uh, on Sunday after the loss to Liberty on Saturday. You cannot lose in Pauly to Liberty with what the expectations of what that job are. And then you cannot bookend two losses uh, in the state of Ohio and uh, I guess Illinois, but they lost to Cincinnati and uh, Ohio State by a combined 43 points. And then you bookend it with a loss to Belmont at Poly. So uh, this was coming. I mean, like, I feel like everyone around UCLA knew this was coming after the Liberty loss. They decided to cut bait. Uh, I get why. Uh, you know, I totally understand why this is happening now. Um, the way we're going to structure this is we're going to do five minutes. On Steve Alford, we're going to do like a quick rundown of what the UCLA job is and why I don't think it's quite like the top five level job that some people do. And then we're going to talk about like who we think, uh, what the future is basically for them. So, uh, Rob, the first thing that I will ask you, what do you think of the UCLA tenure under Steve Alford here? Um, It is underwhelming, I guess is probably the way. To phrase it best, you know, they have three Sweet 16s, but I don't think any of those Sweet 16s were the kind of team where you were like, oh, you know what, this is a this is a team that can make a lot of noise. One of them was like, what, they were an 11 seed one year and they made it. They were another year they beat like a, what was that, a 13 seed and a 12 seed to get to the Sweet 16. One year there was like a phantom goaltend. I forget exactly what it was, but like yeah, Bryce Alford like shot at three and they called a goaltending penalty uh, on SMU. It was, I think it was Yannick Marrera, the like six eleven yes. center that they had. Um, that was a great pull. Yannick Marrera. Yeah. And uh, they go through on like a weird goaltending call. Yeah. And then the other sweet 16 was the Lonzo ball year where it felt like they were going to be great, but they never decided to play any defense. And then Lonzo ball got cooked by De'Aaron Fox in the sweet 16. And, yeah. um, and you know, here we are, Steve so, Alford. That was the that was the pinnacle of the Steve Alford era. Was Lonzo Ball getting cooked by De'Aaron Fox in the Sweet Sixteen? So, like, I'll come back a little bit on the first year, right? Like, it was Ben Howland's players, and I think that needs to be notified, right? Like, uh, 
they went 28 and 9 they won the pac 12 tournament and they go to the sweet 16 and lose to a florida team that ended up going to the final four and went 36 and 3 that year right like to me that's probably what that year should have been for them right especially coming off of what howland uh had left uh, he obviously left a lot of players went 25 and 10 uh in what they were they made the ncaa tournament lost to minnesota the year that howland got fired right yeah and they won the pac-12 i think he's the only high major coach to win their conference and then get fired right so the first year i think they hit expectation right the second year they go 22 and 14 they do make that run to the sweet 16 but again is we talked about the Yannick Marrera pool, probably not quite what the uh, UCLA fan base was hoping for. 2016 was an abject disaster. 2017 is the Lonzo Ball year. Uh, Lonzo kind of was awesome. That team was great. Uh, they end up losing to Kentucky, as you said, in the De'Aaron Fox game. Uh, if I remember correctly, they went like 15-3 and three and lost to an outlier good Arizona team in the Pac-12 uh, race. So... I'm actually pretty okay with that in terms of meeting expectations. Last year, uh, they bring in a big recruiting class again. Uh, you know, they still have Aaron Holiday who goes in the first round, Tom Welsh who goes in the second round. So they have two draft picks, big recruiting class, and still go first four. Probably not meeting expectations. And obviously this year they didn't meet expectations. So really, I think if you're looking at it charitably, Steve Alford met expectations probably in two of the six years that he was there, right? And even meeting those expectations, it wasn't like they had a great year. It was kind of the minimum right. of what the expectations should be. Well, maybe maybe his first year, that's a little bit unfair, saying that that's the minimum of what the expectations should be. Um, but definitely with like once Lonzo Ball got there, nobody was thinking um, anything other than like this is a Final Four-bound team. Like Steve Alford's yeah. figured it out. He's blah, 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 all that stuff. And uh, they end up finishing outside the top 100 in defensive efficiency, can't stop anybody, don't win the conference, and get bounced out by Kentucky. Right, so they had three first-round picks and two additional second-round picks on that team, plus Bryce Alford, who is, you know, for all of his warts, uh, like, destroying the G League right now, so in terms of, like, shooting the basketball. So, like, they had a lot of talent. Isaac Hamilton's in the G League, I believe, as well. So, like, they had the talent to be better than what they were. They lose to a Kentucky team that was good, but they probably should not have been a three-seed. Probably should have been higher than that at the end of the day. You can probably make the case for the first year as well. They probably should have been a higher seed than what they ended up going into the NCAA tournament with. Um, I think that a lot of the consternation with Steve comes back to uh, there wasn't a lot of excitement about the hire when it happened. A vocal, uh, I don't think it was a majority of the fan base, but a very vocal minority that was bigger than what the typical vocal minority is, uh, was not a fan of the hire. Uh, he did, he exacerbated matters, uh, just straight up in his first year by starting Bryce Alford over Zach Levine. Like we can just be real and say that was probably a bad idea, right? Yes. That's probably, he lost some people at the start that never yeah. came back on board. Right. And like, again, I'm someone who will defend Bryce Alford. He was a very good Pac-12 player. You don't start him over a guy who's averaging 25 points a night in the NBA right now. Right. Like, it it just is what it is. Um, I, you know, I I get why people look at the tenure and think uh, he was just awful and a joke. I don't think it was that far. Like, I I don't. I think that you go to three Sweet 16s even under the expectations that there were. Uh, two of them, I think, were legitimate Sweet 16s where, like, they actually performed up the expectations and did what they were supposed to do. It's hard for me to get behind being like, okay, this was, like, a total disaster of a tenure. But, look, I think it's pretty clear that he did not 
meet the standard of the UCLA job. And, and like, look, looking back, we probably should have expected that something like this. Like, to me, this was a median outcome for Steve Alford at this job. It just was never a great fit to begin with. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the best way to say it. He is... Maybe it was a little bit too much of a job for him, if that makes sense. You know, I think he's a better fit at some place like in New Mexico or someplace um, maybe a step or two below what a UCLA is because I'm not convinced that he is the guy that you want coaching a bunch of five stars that are going to be there for one or two years, right? I, I think he's the guy you want kind of building up a program over three, four, five seasons. Um, with players that are going to be there for a while. I think that is a better fit for him as a basketball coach uh, than anything else. But at the end of the day, really what happened with this team in particular is, is one, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, Sam, because I know that you're pretty close to that program, is one, I think that he put together a roster that just does not fit. It seems like what he kind of started to do on the recruiting trail, instead of going out to get guys that he wanted and worked with what he wanted to do, he started saying, okay, this is the most talented kid I can get. This is the best player in L.A. This is the best four-star uh, within you know five miles of our campus, and this is the best five-star that has any interest in our program. I'm going to get all these talented dudes, all these highly rated dudes, and see if we can figure it out. And right. it kind of bit them. Uh, on the backside, and and I don't know if it's something where, with like Jalen Hands, look, talented dude, he could do some things on the basketball court. He is not a point guard. He is not a leader. He's not going to play any defense. He probably cares a little bit more about his draft standing than he does about UCLA winning. Chris Wilkes, not a great defender. Somebody that's more interested in his draft stock than UCLA winning. Moses Brown. A great defender, not someone with a reputation for playing hard, not someone with a reputation for being a leader, somebody that probably cares a little bit more about his draft standing than UCLA winning. You put all that together with a group of guys that do not like that. I had one source close to the program tell me that the team, quote, hated him, meaning Alford. So you put all that together, and this is kind of what you get. So if I, I understand why UCLA made the move that they they, they did. You know, the Pac-12 was terrible. There's enough talent on this roster to to make a run and, and win a league title if it all kind of comes together. I don't think it's all going to come together. I don't know who they have on that staff that the players would actually play for. I'm not convinced that Murray Barto is the guy that they are, are going to play for. And actually, this was an interesting point. I had uh, I was talking with Jeff Goodman of Stadium earlier, and he said part of the reason that they they made this change when they made it was because they they didn't want to take the risk that Steve Alford would get these guys to figure it out. Yeah. All these these talent on the play, uh, all the talent on this roster um, would come together, and then they would make the run to win the Pac-12 or get an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament, and then they'd be forced to keep Alf- Alford for another season. So so yeah, I'll, I'll kind of address a lot of that. Um, uh, and I'm trying to like figure out my brain where to start. I, I think I'll start with the recruiting side. So I, I think that what happened was, and I fell into this trap in terms of like commending it and thinking it was like a good thing that was happening at the time. Um, I think they started recruiting off of rankings uh, instead of recruiting for scheme. And I, I was certainly like, I, I wrote like a big thing on like them turning around on the recruiting trail and like David Grace playing a huge role in this. I think if you look back, uh, Maybe if you ask Alfred in five years, the thing that he might regret most was hiring David Grace uh, Mm -hmm. on the staff. And I think that you look at uh, the fact that Grace obviously was let go at the end of last season um, 
you know, you look at the players that he brought in. He brought in a lot of the Compton Magic kids, right? Uh, Jalen Hand specifically is one of them. Uh, I believe Jules Bernard was uh, a Compton Magic kid as well. You can look through Jalen Hill. Uh, TJ Leaf was a Compton Magic kid, although he committed to Arizona originally. So, like, this was kind of a miss until Sean and Miller decided to not take him on that. Uh, was It was like a U18 team. Uh, and then TJ decided to go play for Israel in that tournament. Um so like you can look through a lot of kind of different EK Onobogu's another guy didn't really have like a crazy impact. Uh I think that you can look through this and say like hey uh just through who Grace's connections were with, uh you know, he was a former coach with the Compton Magic. It it made sense to kind of go down this road and get kids, but at the end of the day, they weren't the right kids for UCLA's scheme. You mentioned like guys kind of playing for their draft stock. Uh, I think Wilkes is pressing right now for sure. Uh, I think Jalen Hands thinks he's a pro. He's just not a good basketball player in my opinion. Um, Moses Brown, I will say, like I think Moses genuinely plays hard. Uh, I think that he is actually someone who tries and seems to care and seems to... I, I don't know if he like full-on gets it, but I think that he is someone that is not necessarily as singularly focused on his future as he is the team's future. Um, but Jalen Hands is like the poster child of all this, I think. Like Jalen Hands is like he is the set seventh best assist rate in all of college basketball right now. That's fool's gold because he dribbles around the perimeter constantly uh, and just like totally breaks off from what they're trying to do every time, turns the ball over consistently and can't hit a shot to save his life. He doesn't like contact. If you hit him like with a screen, uh, if you try, he tries to avoid contact going into the basket. So he never takes free throws. It, it's he's a, just not a good basketball player. That's why I don't think this is going to turn around the worst. The Tiger Campbell injury to me is like seriously a moment where uh, we look back and say, this is where Steve Alford might've maybe not where Steve Alford got fired, but it's the moment where it became a very real possibility. Steve Alford was going to be gone this year because they had no backup point guard in Jalen hands. Then just could do whatever he wanted and they had no recourse. Yeah. I mean, that was, I think we talked about that when it happened was yeah. that they didn't really have a guy that could, uh, step in and do what Tiger Campbell was going to do. Like he, Tiger Campbell, he's not Chris Paul. You know, like we're not talking. Like he's a he's what like a top fifty ish kind of player. Like he's he's going to be a good point guard in the Pac twelve assuming he comes back healthy. But what he he's a steadying presence that allow that took the ball out of hands hands, <laughs> and um and allowed him to play off the ball and kind of just created like a leader on the floor and a presence on the floor that they don't really have and now what you're doing is you're asking a guy who is wired to be a scorer and a playmaker and a creator to go out there and kind of like run an offense and that's just not what Jalen Hands does and you know so much of what basketball so much of building a team with talented players is putting these players in the position that is best for them to succeed and the problem is like that's just not happening with this group. It just isn't working. And then you combine that with the fact that, you know, they don't want to play defense and they don't, they quit on the coach and um, they're more worried about things other than winning. Like and by put the all way, that like, together and this is what I, happens. I do think that this team is like totally tuned out Alfred from talking to people around there. Like, Oh, there's I, no I think, question. Absolutely yeah. I think no they question. were done. Like no question. They were done. Um, just like the last thing on Alford, I guess we should look at this from his perspective. I think he takes this job again, like say that he knows what the future is and he has a chance to stay at New Mexico or go to UCLA. I still think he takes this job like a hundred times out of a hundred and goes to UCLA 
deals with all of the everything that happened from banners flying over asking to fire him and uh like dealing with all of the nepotism allegations and everything just all of that like i think that he still does this because ucla is still it's still like the premier job like it's still a a premier job i will say not the premier job but it is still such a premier job that i think you want to test yourself on that level so i mean i guess this is a good segue for where we are going next in this conversation but i don't necessarily think that the way it currently stands um it is a premier job because they're not investing the money in it that they need to invest let me put this into context steve alford makes 2.6 2.6 or made 2.6 million dollars per year at UCLA living in Westwood. Conzo Martin at Missouri makes 3 million a year. Will Wade in Baton Rouge makes 3 million a year. Avery Johnson in Tuscaloosa makes 2.9 million a year. Mike Bray makes more than what Steve Alford makes living in South Bend, Indiana. Like the list goes on and on and on and on. If you're going to want like if you want to go get an elite coach, you have to pay elite and you have to pay the premium because of the fact that the cost of living in L.A. is out of this world. Sam, you know, you live in L.A. Like, it's very, very difficult to be able to find a way to, like, live somewhere close to something that where you're able to afford to pay the rent and pay the food and pay the restaurants and do all of that while living on, like, a, a salary of whatever it is. Now, imagine you're a basketball coach and you have the choice between, like, going out and getting a job at a powerhouse program in Bloomington, Indiana, where you can go for, like, a million dollars get everything that you could possibly dream of in a house whereas like a million dollars in la is gonna get you what like three bedrooms and two and a half baths yeah uh, that's about right honestly in terms of like real estate um in terms of what this job is so i think ucla fans think it is on the level of kansas kentucky duke north carolina like those schools i would say it's not right now because of what you said so uh you mentioned putting money back into the program. So the good news is like that they just built this great facility, the Mo Austin Center, uh, right on campus for basketball players, right? It is their new basketball facility for the men's and women's team. Uh, the only reason that really happened was because like guys like Russell Westbrook and Kevin Love like gave back to the program and like gave them money to build something like this. Um, you look at the fact that they don't charter flights. Like, it is insane to me that a program like UCLA does not charter flights. Like, Gonzaga charters all of their flights. Dayton charters flights. Wichita State charters flights. Right. UCLA can't charter flights. And and to put this in the contest, like, I'm sure people listening to this. This is, like, the most, like, yeah. Right. Right. But think about it like this, dude. How much does it suck for, like, a random six-foot guy to sit in a coach seat on a Southwest flight? Now imagine that, one— you are a seven-foot basketball player. Two, you're a seven-foot basketball player that just played 35 minutes of high-intensity basketball, right? It's 1 o'clock in the morning by the time you're getting on the flight. You just had to spend however many hours in the airport waiting to actually board that flight. Now you have to go sit in the middle seat next to, like, that fat, sweaty guy and somebody that doesn't know how to share the the elbow rest. And imagine being Moses Brown and having to sit in there. Right. I, was, I was talking to one coach. It actually said that what they do when they don't charter flights is whoever leads the team in rebounding, they get those exit rows. And then after that, everybody else is kind of uh, – it's up to them and uh, to sit like in whatever coach seat they're going to end up getting stuck in. Imagine being seven-footer just playing a basketball game, getting stuck in the middle seat on a Delta flight. And this is at the same time where we have all these studies coming out about how important it is 
for athletes to like get a certain amount of sleep and you know how bad overnight flights are for NBA players and all this other kind of stuff. We're doing this to college kids that are that are and you're expecting to win and and well it's not necessarily expecting to win, expecting to compete at the same level as a hundred other programs that actually do charter these flights. It's just not gonna happen. And it hurts you in recruiting. If you are yep. a kid if you're imagine if you're a five star, you can go anywhere you want in the world. You can go to UCLA where you're going to be playing in front of a half full building of people that show up an hour late because getting anything done in LA on time is simply impossible because of how spread out it is and how much traffic there is and the fact that they'll have 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern time tips, 6 p.m. local time tips, and expect people that work a nine to five to be able to get there just doesn't work that way. Imagine that. Versus like going to see Cameron Indoor Stadium, knowing that you're getting like you might you might get your own private jet based on what Duke's budget is for for flying uh, flying all over the place. So you put it into context like that, and all of a sudden it makes it's a much different story. It's not necessarily what the players should get. It's if you want to be an elite program and compete at that level, you have to invest the money that the other elite programs are investing. Yeah, and they just haven't been willing to do that also the administration is difficult to deal with you look at the fact that uh i mean like ucla fans don't have faith in dan guerrero to like make a great hire in this scenario um they probably probably shouldn't to be honest um given what his track record is of coaches like jim mora did not work out well um you look at the fact that uh look like fan expectations like play a critical role here right uh like the fact that they wanted to run offered out of the job after two sweet 16s in three years, most schools would be very happy with that. Right. Like even given the circumstances of that second one, like most schools would be like, okay, this is, this is fine. Alford's doing, he's doing what we expected. That's not the way it is at UCLA. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I, like, I, I don't think that that is an unfair thing for them to hold over a coach, but it's a reality. Like it just, kind of lords over everything there it it is a difficult job that is not for everyone uh it all there yeah i would 100 percent agree with that and again look at you coming up with these segues man it's almost like you're you're uh, a podcast host so i guess what that means is where are you looking when it comes to uh replacing steve alford because i i think there are probably six names that are going to show up on every single one of these lists and let's just get this out of the way you ain't getting billy donovan you ain't getting Jay Wright. You're probably not going to go out and hire Chris Beard because that's a weird fit. You're probably so, so not going to go out and hire Kevin Keats, which is a weird fit. So there are like six names that everyone's going to put on every single list. Okay, so I will say this. Uh, I think that their first, like the first guy that they want is Billy Donovan, I bet. Um, and you're not getting them. What I've been told. I, I do not think that that happens, but I think that that is the guy that they want. Um, they want Billy Donovan, and um, and I want to drive a McLaren. Right. Uh, you know, may, maybe neither like this really t- because you, you want to know why neither of them are happening because you can't afford it. Right. Like they they would genuinely have to pay Billy Donovan probably six to six and a half million dollars, and we have no track record of UCLA being willing to do that. Like maybe they are. Maybe some crazy donor is willing to do this. I don't know if they are. Um, I, like here's what I don't get: Why do they need a donor? You have a two hundred and eighty million dollar contract with Under Armour. Where is that money going? Chip Where Kelly's is that pocket, money going? baby. 
and, and that's what like that's like a third of what they get per year that he's there, I know, right? I know. Um, Where's the, the next? Going? So the next guy that everyone brings up is Fred Hoiberg. Uh, Hoiberg was obviously fired this season by the Chicago Bulls. He was uh, at Iowa State for many years. Was incredibly successful. He's forty six, so he's young. He's uh, not necessarily like vibrant. He's very quiet and low key. It's not really like Hollywood to me uh, in a lot of ways. Like they'll play a very up-tempo, exciting offensive scheme. But the other thing that I think a lot of people haven't really been noting with this is like Fred Hoiberg built Iowa state based off of getting transfers. Fred Hoiberg, doesn't really like recruiting like that's just real right like he has said many times himself he doesn't really like recruiting uh it's basically impossible to get transfers into ucla uh their academic well, standard here's, here's for accepting transfers is crazy difficult so you can you can work around that but like it's that's my like i think it's a questionable fit because of that Here's what I would say to that. I, I just I think Hoiberg is a very, very smart coach. And I think he understood that when you are at Iowa State, you have to do things differently than if you are at a program like UCLA. I think he realized yeah. that his best chance for getting players that could win at that level was to find a couple hidden gems um, and then surround them with players like, uh, I don't know, like a Bryce DeJean Jones who flamed out of where like UNLV and, and – um, was he at UCLA? No, USC. Was it? He was whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah, go, go and find these second chance guys. Go get DeAndre uh, Kane. Yes, go get players like Deontay um, Deontay Burton. Go get players yeah. like that that are second chance guys that didn't work out at their first job or at their first uh, first school, and that's probably your best bet. At UCLA, I think he's smart enough to realize he doesn't need to do that, you know. And I, look, here's the other thing: I don't think he really needs to go out and recruit either. Like, you got to show up at certain places every once in a while to be that face. But you go and you hire the guys that can get you somebody, right? So so here's with, what like, makes that more complicated right now, though. Um, USC is going to get basically all of the Compton Magic kits right now because they hired Eric Mobley, um, and they have the Mobleys committed, the tw- uh, not the twins, the brothers, Isaiah and Evan. Uh, Evan is like one of the two or three best high school players in the entire country. I would venture that from 2019, 2020, and probably 2021, they probably get most of the Compton Magic kids, which makes the job at UCLA more difficult than it should be in terms of recruiting. Yeah, I mean, fair enough. Um I don't necessarily think that you only have to get Compton Magic kids to be able to s- succeed no. at UCLA, and I think that there is something to um, to just being able to recruit to that brand if you don't have if the program's in better shape than what it is. Like if you look at some of the guys that that, that they've got, like Shabazz Muhammad was from Las Vegas, Kyle Anderson right. from New Jersey, Jordan Jordan Adams is from Georgia. Kevon um, Looney was like I think he was like tangentially connected to the magic but like he's from milwaukee yeah and and you know even guys that are um on the roster now jalen hands is obviously from la but chris wilkes is an indiana kid moses brown is uh i believe he's new york city right new york city yeah so you don't have to just recruit from la so i i get that i know it'll make it harder uh but i like i said i think if you're if fred hoiber takes the job i think he he's smart enough to hire somebody that is going to be able to get him the players that he needs i agree and i i think like genuinely hoiberg there it it's not a great fit but i think it's a fine fit to work there um it, ucla like i i don't think anyone would write the column this is a bad idea if they fought if they hire fred hoiberg um i think a lot of people would actually write that it's a good idea and i mean it's not a it's not a I, I wouldn't call it a home run hire but based off of what i think they're going to be willing to invest 
and based off of the the financial limitations that the program puts on itself, it might be the best you could do. And it's and, not and, bad. Yeah. And like, by the way, Fred Hoiberg got a whole lot of money from the Chicago Bulls. So like maybe you don't have to go insane in terms of salary. Maybe you do, though. Uh, who knows? So the next guys, uh, Earl Watson is a name that comes up. He coached the Phoenix Suns. He was like, I thought he was bad when he was the Phoenix Suns coach. Like, I genuinely thought they, they elevated him. So what happened was they elevated him to an assistant role. And then like later that year, they gave him the head coaching job. Uh, I don't think he was ready for that job yet. I think that his best bet is to just like get another job first and then try and come back to UCLA. Cause obviously he would love to coach UCLA. It's where he went. I would not hire Earl Watson based off of his track record if I was UCLA. Yeah, I mean, I get the connection. UCLA alum, former NBA coach, already connected with Under Armour. But I, I think you're exactly right. I don't necessarily think he's ready for that job. As one, as one Pac-12 coach put it to me, he would just be another unaccomplished Pac-12 head coach. The The name that comes up a lot is Eric Musselman. Um, from what I've been told, the UCLA like uh, pool of people that will be making the decisions are not as high on him as what you would think. Uh, I think he's an awesome coach. I think he's a culture builder. I think that he would do very, very well there. Um, I don't I, know if I necessarily agree with that for, for two reasons. One, like if we're worried about the transfer thing with Hoiberg, like that's Eric Musselman on steroids, right? He He's much more. Sure. Um, but Mus has, a, Mus has a uh, background of recruiting, though, in a way that Hoiberg sure. really doesn't former NBA coach and like he's been he's been an assistant that was tasked with getting players like I get that makes sense to me um, I don't necessarily think it's a deal breaker what I do think might be a deal breaker is the fact that um, let's let's put it like this he's he's a little bit too intense you talk to people that have worked for him you talk to people that have played for him and he is a bit of a bit of a screamer can be a bit grating and there's a reason why he has so much staff turnover um, I don't I just don't know if that's necessarily when you're coming off of two coaches that have robbed people the wrong way, that were hated by either AAU coaches or the players on his own team, I don't necessarily know if Musselman is the right way to go to follow that up. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Um, some of the other random names that like I've gotten from the occasional person, um, like people think they'll call Tony Bennett. If I was Tony Bennett, I would not take that job. Like I, I mean, look, set up look you have to call... You have to call Billy Donovan. You have to call Tony Bennett. You have to call yeah. Jay. You have to make those three calls. Um, and we are at, here. And here's the problem. I think this is the biggest situation with UCLA right now is that you can make those calls, but you ain't getting them. And if the coach of Virginia is saying no to the UCLA job, that tells you all you need to know about what you're paying, what you're you're investing into the program, and where you currently are. Yeah, and like I've heard, I, I think that Goodman said Mike Bray, right? Um, yeah. It makes sense, right? He's at another sure. high academic institution. He's at an Under Armour program. That's definitely a name that I heard um, outside of what, what Goodman said, and it's not one that I think is – I think it would be a very, very good hire for UCLA. I don't necessarily think that it's something that um, Mike Bray would take, and that's mainly because of the money involved and some of the expectations that come with uh, what is limited um, investment into the program. Like It would take a lot – I think it would take a statement of like we're getting charter flights, we're going to charter uh, yeah. uh, the art, like recruiting everywhere, and you're going to get like a pay raise from what you're currently making at Notre Dame. Um, 
uh, Parrish and Norlander uh, are good friends over at the Ion College Basketball Podcast. Uh, shout out that podcast that I used to be a sort of part of occasionally whenever I would get words in. Um, they mentioned Rick Patino as like someone that Parrish speculatively, not based off of like information or anything, would consider. I cannot see Patino getting past the background check of UCLA, so I would just not uh, not like even spend time on that really uh this is the way that i would phrase it if you could hire rick patino you go hire rick patino yeah i don't think that you can hire rick patino he's he without a doubt without question with zero argument i don't even think there's any way that you would disagree with me on this he is flat out the best basketball coach that they can go get right uh and if they got him he's you immediately hire a guy that is a top five coach in the sport. He's going to turn that program around. Maybe he only stays five, six, seven years, uh, but he will get you back to what you want UCLA to basketball to be. I don't know if you can do it. I don't know if there's a show calls coming in two years. There's just too many question marks. I don't even know. Like, I don't, I, I just, I, I don't think that it can get done. But if I'm UCLA AD, I do everything I can to try and get him because I think he is without a doubt the best guy you can get. And I mean, he'll say yes. And he'll say yes to like whatever cut rate salary you offer. Guys, I have not been told, uh, but I think are excellent people that they should reach out to. Uh, Chris Holtman, Chris Holtman's buyout at Ohio State is apparently just fucking insane. No, so, he doesn't. He doesn't have a buyout. It's guaranteed. Yeah, like he, well, he would. I talked to. Would I talked to, talk to, to a source them. that I talked to a source that would know, and he is his 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 contract is guaranteed. It's fully guaranteed. He has, a, I think it's eight years, 24 million or something like that. Yeah. And it's fully guaranteed. Yeah. So like if he leaves that job, he has to pay Ohio state, like an insane amount of money. Um, at least within the first four years from what I was <laughs> think, told. Think about that. If it's fully guaranteed. Right. And, um, I'm pretty sure that means that you have to pay it, which is, uh, what is that? Like, um, he's in the second year of his deal. Like you basically have to pay $18 yeah, million so Ohio state to hire him or something like that. You're not doing it. I have not, not, I've not been told Kevin Keats, but I think Keats is like a star. Uh, He's awesome. I would be surprised if they go that direction, but I think he's genuinely very good. Uh, Same with Chris Beard. Keats plays more up-tempo, so I think he fits UCLA a little bit better. Beard is, uh, oh man, Beard's Beard's teams are tough to watch, and I think UCLA fans would hate that. But again, I think Chris Beard is one of the 10 best coaches in the sport. Uh, I, I would strongly consider this. And I think I love both of those two guys. Two other names I would put in that same conversation are Buzz Williams and Mick Cronin as guys that are very, very good basketball coaches that I don't think fit what UCLA would be. And like with Chris Beard, uh, like if I'm him, there's no way that I leave Texas Tech for anything other than Texas when Shaka Smart inevitably moves on from there. That's the only job that I leave Texas Tech for. So the guy that I've been told the most, the guy whose name I've gotten the absolute most about the UCLA job is Jamie Dixon, which is very weird to me, given the Ben Hallen connection. Uh, like he was Ben Hallen's protege at Pitt, replaced him at Pitt. And like, could that be the trajectory again? Could he essentially replace Ben Hallen at UCLA? Um, Dixon is from like the Hollywood area. Very sharp guy. Uh, very... Uh, very offensively inclined in terms of his coaching style. They play a little bit slower, but I think that would be okay. You look at his TCU teams, they've gotten up and down the court once they get point guards pretty well. Uh, it's very, it's, it is something that I think uh, is worth noting. Like if you made me pick who gets this job right now, uh, and I, I don't know, like it's so early, it's literally not even 2019 as we're recording this, this job will not like be hired until probably the end of March. 
Uh, so like so many things can change. I think if you made me give a pick right now, I think I would say Jamie Dixon. Uh, and it might be like, I get it. Southern California, his family's still there. Um, he makes a ton of money at TCU though. I don't know if UCLA can afford to um, pay what it's going to take to get him from there. Um, he's also at his alma mater and I'm sure that that matters. And like things are kind of trending up for him right now at TCU yeah. in terms of the investment that they have coming into that program and, uh, the amount of talent that's like kind of in that Dallas and, and Texas area. So um, I get it. All the dots connect. I don't know if I necessarily see it happening. And if I, if I'm the one making that decision, I go Patino first. And then I probably, I think I would lean towards Hoiberg over Jamie Dixon, but I, I don't like, I don't, I don't hate that. There's the Jamie Dixon one. Like there's no glitz or glamor to it, but I, I think it'd be a fine hire. Yeah. Um, I think that's all I got. If you were to rank UCLA within this, ecosystem of college basketball i would say like top 10 job not a top five job right (sighs) maybe maybe top 15 something like that like if they were willing to make the commitment of resources it is 100 percent a top 10 job without that commitment it's more difficult to say like i think there's a reasonable case you would rather have like for instance shaka smart got brought up a ton of times with the ucla job last time I think you would rather have Texas because the expectations are lower, the amenities are better, and you can get like you can be just as good at Texas as you can be at UCLA, given the recruiting, given all of the advantages you have. I mean, I I, I'm, I firmly believe that Texas is the best job in the country that isn't um, Duke, Kansas, North Carolina, Kentucky, Indiana. Yeah. I think that, that that Texas is the best job. It's not one of those five. The only reason I don't put UCLA among those five, is, I mean, it's the salary that they pay. The cost of living in LA, um, the fact that it's it it's it's tough to deal to like to navigate the Los Angeles recruiting world. That's not necessarily something that's ideal for anybody. Um, it is not that you like you look at those five programs I mentioned. You compare their home court to what UCLA's home court is. Not necessarily ideal either. And like the the investment into the program beyond just what the salary is. You know, are are you going to get charter flights? I mean, it it really comes. It sounds weird to like base the decision on on charter flights, but I think it really is just kind of like a statement to what UCLA basketball, um, what they're willing to put into the program. If they're not willing to invest the, the, for what it takes to get charter flights, if they're not willing to pay that, then do they really want to be an elite basketball program? I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, Rob, we're done here. Uh, after a quick little ad break, we will go to Coleswicker and we'll talk about the NBA draft. Thanks, uh, Rob. Thanks, Sam. All right, before we get to Cole's Wicker, I've got a couple advertisements for you. RX Bar, uh, they want to build things the right way. They believe in the power of transparency, and they let their core ingredients do all of the talking with them. They're obviously a whole food protein bar. Uh, What that means is they're made with real whole ingredients. Uh, You would recognize RX Bar at the shelf. They're the ones that have egg whites for protein, dates to bind, and nuts for texture. Then other delicious ingredients like unsweetened chocolate, real fruit and spices, like sea salt or cinnamon it turns out these real food ingredients taste great uh they're great for a number of occasions breakfast on the go snack at the office uh 
you throw them in the bag for a plane ride. I'll be doing a decent amount of traveling here, scouting coming up at the beginning of the year. Uh, I'm excited to have RX Bar, and, and they come in 14 delicious flavor varieties. Uh, mango, pineapple, chocolate, hazelnut, uh, everything from mint, mint chocolate, which is my favorite, uh, all the way to seasonal flavors as well. And they also have RX Nut Butter, which contains a few simple and similar ingredients like egg whites, fruits, and nuts. Each single-serve packet contains delicious creamy nut butter with 9 grams of high-quality protein. It's squeezable and spreadable and pairs great with fruit, rice cakes, pretzels, or straight out of the pouch. I personally am a big fan of RX Bar. I think that they are just the easiest way to have a quick meal on the go that is healthy and uh, protein-based. For 25% off your first order of the best-seller variety pack, visit rxbar.com slash game theory and enter that promo code game theory g-a-m-e-t-h-e-o-r-y at checkout this is valid in the united states only and for a limited time but go to rxbar.com slash game theory and get that uh great uh variety pack that will allow you to taste a lot of different types of of rx bars uh our second sponsor today is simple contacts you guys know that i love simple contacts i'm gonna have to do a quick reorder of simple contacts in the new year because my contacts are running out from the last time that i ordered simple contacts it's the most convenient way to renew your uh, contact contact lens prescription and reorder your brand of contacts from anywhere in minutes Instead of heading to the doctor year after year just to renew your prescription for something you wear every day, you can do it on your own time and terms in just a few minutes. This truly is vision care for the 21st century. It's convenient, fast, reliable. It's a five-star experience. It offers choice, and it's going to save you money because that vision test is only $20. Uh, an appointment without insurance costs up to 200 The contact lens prices are unbeatable. Standard shipping is free, and best of all, uh, I'm offering a promotion to our listeners here. Uh, you know, just go to simplecontacts.com slash game theory 20. You're going to get $20 off your contacts order. Uh, when you go to simplecontacts.com slash game theory 20 and enter that code game theory 20 at checkout, uh, it's really just a fantastic product. I am a huge fan of simple contacts. Uh, as I've been saying to you for a long time on this show, I, I really, really uh, believe in this product. Uh, this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. Uh, they only test that your current prescription still helps you see 2020 and they renew that prescription. They don't write completely new uh, scripts or examine eye health, but go to simplecontacts.com slash game theory 20 and enter that code at the checkout uh, and you're going to get $20 off your contacts order. Now to Cole's Wicker. Cole, how you doing, man? Uh, we're going to talk about a variety of topics here. We're going to talk really quickly at the top about what Rob and I talked about with UCLA because you've watched them a couple times. Uh, and then we're going to move on to a few interesting topics, just like kind of around the NBA right now. We're going to talk about Dennis Smith and his role in Dallas. We're going to talk about the Patrick McCaw deal quickly. And then we're going to kind of do a theoretical discussion on if we're undervaluing bigs on rookie contracts like late in the first round potentially where you can get them super cheap and then finally we're, we're going to just jump into an end of year 2018 review as it refers to the 2019 draft who are some of the guys that have really risen up our boards uh over the course of the last little while cole how you doing man doing well it's kind of an interesting day went to the seahawks game yesterday end of the nfl regular season that was a bittersweet experience seahawks played 
freaking terrible. Probably the worst sporting event I've ever been to live. So <laughs> that's uh, that's interesting. It's also great to have fantasy football off of the timeline. I I don't know, man. I'm not a huge fan of fantasy football Twitter. Just all everybody talking about their teams all the time. So now it's like straight NBA, straight college basketball, a little bit of NFL playoffs. So getting into the better time of the year. Yeah, I finished third in my uh, fantasy football league with the Athletic this year, so I'm feeling pretty good about it. But I'm excited for it to be. I'm excited for it to be done. Not gonna lie to you. <laughs> um, let's talk about UCLA really quickly. Uh, we'll focus here on just like the prospects on UCLA because there are a lot of guys on this team that think they're pros. My guess is that they're not pros. Uh, let's start <laughs> with the guy that I kind of have now trashed on like multiple podcasts today. Uh, Jalen Hands. Uh, I don't think Jalen Hands is good at basketball. Do you think Jalen Hands is good at basketball? I do not. No. I mean, some of his pull-ups last year got me kind of intrigued. He took some deep range, like 28, 30-footers, but I don't think the guy thinks the game at a high level. I just don't know what you're doing with a prospect like that. I don't like his decision-making. Um, according to other reports, there's been some attitude issues there, too. So I don't I don't consider him a prospect. Like He's nowhere near my top 60. I mean, maybe like top 120 or something. If you get down far enough, you're going to encounter like some athletic traits. And some of the pre-college basketball pedigree maybe factors in a little bit at that stage, but I'm not really interested. So he pounds the ball constantly on the perimeter. Um, his assist rate is good. Like I think that it mostly has to do with the fact that he dribbles 67 times before uh, <laughs> handing the ball off. Um, he is a terrible defender. He is maybe one of the five worst perimeter defenders in college basketball. He's so bad. Um, can't perform anything that they need in their scheme. Uh, 40% from two-point range this year. I thought the three-point shooting last year was like slightly a mirage. He shot 37% on 115 attempts. Uh, this year he's at 31% on 67 attempts. I Honestly, like you said, like maybe 120. He would not even be near my top 120 right now. I, I don't think he is someone that I want on my basketball team. Maybe it's a bad situation, but whatever. Um, Chris Wilkes is a guy that I had as a first rounder coming into the year, and I do not have that now. Uh, bad true shooting percentage at 53% for what he is. Uh, low assist rate, just doesn't really pass the ball at a super high level. Uh, never really has. He shot 35% from three last year, 34% this year. I think he can sort of shoot, albeit inconsistently. But I think he needs to do a better job of finishing inside to become like a genuine, true potential, like real prospect, as well as do a better job of defending. Yeah, I don't like I, his archetype is kind of like a difficult shot maker. You'll see him some of his tape. He does have that high release so he can hit some difficult shots off the dribble. Just conceptually and aesthetically, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Middleton. I don't think he's anywhere near as good, obviously, but that is going to be the kind of player he's going to have to be in the NBA to win that way. And I just don't think he's anywhere near that caliber of shooter. I mean, his stats aren't that great as far as his shooting ability. I do think maybe on tape it's a little bit better. And if you're, you know, second half of the, or the second round, maybe you invest in someone like that, a wing who can get his own shot at times. I agree. The athleticism concerns are stark there. He's not a bouncy athlete. He's more, again, of a difficult one-on-one -on -one shot maker who can make shots off the dribble. I'm not sure how intrigued I am. I had him top of the second round coming into the year. I would probably have him latter half of the second right now. Yeah, that's where I'm at. I have him at like 50 right now. Um, I think if he comes out, he probably gets drafted. I'll be honest. Like I do think a team Agreed. will take a shot on a guy who's 6'8", with like a 7-foot wingspan, who could be like an actual wing and who has potential to shoot it. Um, any interest in Moses Brown? 
from what I've seen, no. As you can tell, I haven't seen a ton of UCLA this year, frankly, just because I'm not that interested in the Pac-12 overall. The Pac-12 has been horrendous this year outside of Arizona State. And I just don't – I think I've seen two games of UCLA in the beginning of the year, and Moses Brown did not interest me that much at this time. I just don't believe in the shooting mechanics at all. He's a developmental big. We're going we're gonna to get into this a little bit with this NBA discussion, how you value bigs, getting him on a contract. I think Moses Brown is a little bit too developmental, and I don't see the upside as like an impact starter to invest that kind of capital in he looks more like a second contract guy to me yeah i think that he should stay in school um and continue to develop he's an awesome offensive rebounder he is very skinny and like isn't necessarily like a full-on position establisher but i'm often surprised by how deep he gets post position sometimes like i would expect him to never be able to do it and like he kind of does it sometimes and it like gives me hope that just he's strong and like wiry strong in a way um reports i've gotten are that like he actually does listen to like the coaches there and like wants to be good so i think that that's a positive like i i think he should just stay in school and deal with whoever the new coach is because i don't like right now he'd be a guy that i think would get a two-way contract and that's just not and like I wouldn't sign him to a two-way contract, but I think some organization would sign him to a two-way contract. Yeah, that's fair. And honestly, I just feel if you're a big and you do that, I just don't know what the guarantee is that you're ever going to find like a solidified roster spot. I would stay in school and kind of continue to hone your skills because right. bigs are so replaceable. Like if you're like a, and I don't think his upside is tremendous from what I've seen. And he's a high variance prospect. So our team's really going to invest in a big like that. Yeah, I agree. Um, Cody Riley. Jules Bernard, Chris Smith, uh, Jalen Hill, David Singleton, anything? Chris Smith was kind of intriguing last year. He wasn't ready. He got kind of sterling reports. I think uh, the SBN guys were tweeting about him a little bit. I didn't see it on the floor. He definitely wasn't ready, so I'm glad he stayed in school. Cody Riley, I saw in person um, when he played on Marvin Bagley's high school team. I mean, he's a beast. Like I saw him, and I was like, okay, this guy might be like poor, poor man's Julius Randle, <laughs> but I haven't really seen him play much, honestly. I, I don't think any of those guys are really real prospects right now. Yeah, I think they should all stay in school, to be honest. Like, I'm just at the stage where, like, I think it's yeah. better for them to stay around and, like, try and improve their games. Um, yeah, to me, Wilkes is the only guy that I think is a real prospect at this stage. Jalen Hands, to me, was the worst NBA draft combine invite since I've been doing this, uh, which says <laughs> a lot. Um, I honestly am not sure he's a Pac-12 level point guard. Just, I'm not, I'm not even there. Um Let's yep. move on. I think we spent enough time on UCLA on this podcast. Uh, it's a 7-6 and six team that uh, certainly has a lot of pedigrees we talked about with Rob, but not necessarily uh, a great, great spot right now, obviously, given the fact that they're making a coaching change. Uh, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Patrick McCaw? Do you want to start with Dennis Smith? What are you thinking? Let's do Patrick McCaw real quick. Okay, so you're a big Patrick McCaw. Well, let me rephrase. You were a big Patrick McCaw fan coming into the draft. <laughs> you liked him after his rookie year. Where are you right now as he signs a two-year, $6 million deal, $3 million a year um, to go play for the Cleveland Cavaliers, and uh, the second year is going to be non-guaranteed? I assume at this stage that the first year is going to get guaranteed because the guarantee date is on December, or not December, I'm sorry, January 7th, and like I don't think the Cavs would have done this like purely only as a favor to Bill Duffy. I think that they're anticipating keeping him for sure yeah I, I think it's a low risk move i mean there's no investment here they could technically waive him before the guarantee date if they really wanted to but i, I agree with you i think they're going to give him the rest of the season just as a platform to assess his ability i think there is some intrigue here as a kind of a one-two point of attack defender very quick 
with great, great hands. He's very good at getting steals. He was that way in college as well, but very skinny. And the shooting confidence has never really gotten there. That's why I don't think he fit well in Golden State eventually because he wouldn't take those threes. He'd pass up on shots, try to drive. He's not really a, an adept slasher at this stage. Um, he's got pretty good IQ. I think he makes some pretty good decisions as a passer. He's not a primary or even a secondary. He's more of a, a very tertiary handler. But I would like to see him get more of an opportunity. So I think on a team like Cleveland, who obviously they're a bottom five team in the league, what's the downside risk to this? Nothing. I, I don't think it's anything. They still had a little bit of their mid-level exception left over. Actually, I think they might have yeah. had it all left over now that I think about it. Um, so this is like a no-risk, no-opportunity cost move even for them, in my opinion. Uh, so he's not really a trade asset at all, because if I remember like he might be a trade asset, but like he doesn't count against any sort of salary if they were to trade him this summer right because of the way this is set up yeah the new rules it's not like jr smith which was grandfathered into the new cba so there's very big trade complications because it it counts on your non-guaranteed salary right um so this is them just purely giving him a four-month trial i think and i agree with you i think it's a home run move for them because anytime that you can get a uh semi-proven i guess like not really fully proven, but like sort of proven wing for $3 million and you get a cost controlled year after that. I think it's worthwhile. Like if you told me he ended up having like a similar impact to what Justin Holiday does in Chicago, like would that surprise you at all? It wouldn't. No, I think that's conceptually the idea here. Uh, for reference point, when he got that offer from the Warriors, that was guaranteed, correct? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So f- from an overarching standpoint, I, I think two that years, he got really bad. 5.2, correct? Yeah, I think that's right. And I just from an overarching standpoint, I kind of think he got pretty bad advice here, frankly, from the people who were advising him. Like, I, I don't agree with this move from him. I think this turned out maybe not poor because I do think he's going to get a legit opportunity. But again, you're dealing with non-guaranteed money. If he doesn't come up big in the next four months and prove himself, like it's going to be tougher for him. I think I still think a team's going to give him a shot. Like he'll, you know, get like maybe a training camp deal if this doesn't work out because he's a wing who has some ball skills. Like he can conceptually dribble pass and shoot a little bit, even though I don't think it's going to be in a dynamic fashion. But I, I think he just got bad advice here. So I'll kind of take it behind the veil a little bit. I asked around about this probably three months ago something like that uh two months ago whenever whenever his date passed i can't really think about it off the top of my head whenever the whole thing went down um what i got told was like it was more him than the advice that like he was getting um because like at the end of the day like guys have to make decisions on their own lives right like agents can give the advice sometimes and that you know advice will either go in one ear and out the other or they'll accept it and say like hey let's do this i think that's worth remembering in cases like this because i actually like i don't know what happened here that's just like kind of like i'm not like i didn't report at the time that like you know patrick mccaw is not listening to bill duffy I, i don't know if that is what happened here but that's like kind of something that i got told like might have happened there at least so it's worth remembering that it might not always be a situation where you want to uh want to assume that the agent is at fault either very fair and let me rephrase then and say i don't agree with his decision or the advice that he got in the situation yes. because when you are like like i think he described it well he wasn't really proven enough to decline a deal like that when you're talking about guaranteed money five and a half million or whatever it was and now this is what the result is like the nba moves on very quickly from guys that aren't established and i think that he should have just taken that guaranteed money but at least he's getting a shot on a team that could really use him and a team that is 
kind of searching for you know that surplus value contract so maybe it works out for him i hope it does yeah and look at the end of the day here too like if you're cleveland you're doing bill duffy a solid here which is good like yep doing one of the most powerful if not the most powerful agent in the businesses uh in the business a good thing a favor essentially uh i I think it helps i I think that that's the kind of stuff that helps um for him it it is interesting to look back like let's assume that he gets this three million dollars guaranteed and now gets like an opportunity to prove himself i i am not sure that like it worked out terribly for him like yes he doesn't get the extra two to two and a half million i forget exactly what the number was but if you're willing to just like do that and bet on yourself I at least like understand the thought process there. It could have ended up that like this didn't work out like this and this offer never came, but like it might not end up badly, I guess is what I'm saying. I'm not convinced this is going to end up as a bad decision for him. Oh, sure. I just think there was a lot of downside to declining that deal at the time, considering looking at the Warriors this year, especially like they could have probably used him. They don't have a ton of depth. Like Jacob Evans hasn't been ready for them. He's been playing in the G League. They haven't gotten contributions. And you're talking about a team like the Warriors where that's a huge stage. That's a huge platform. If you perform well there, I mean, of course, Kevon Looney didn't get paid as much as maybe we thought he would last offseason, but that's a big. So that's big, not a wing. So not really the same comparison point there, but I do think there was probably more upside in taking the deal from the Warriors just because, again, I think he would have played. Um, if he played poorly, at least you have another guaranteed year. So I, I do agree, though. I, like, it could turn out well for him. At least he's going to get an opportunity. Yeah. Um, let's move on. Let's. I, I like I like this deal for both Makah. Like right now, for assuming that that other contract was a sunk cost, I like the deal for Makah. I like the deal for the Cavs. Um, for the Warriors, I think they had to make this move because it was going to cost them like $15 million to keep him. So I, I don't think that was something that they wanted to do. Uh, but let's move on. Let's talk about Dennis Smith. So Dennis Smith uh, is playing actually pretty well over the last, like, what, week and a half, two weeks or so, I think. Uh, he also was noted in a Mark Stein newsletter saying, like, uh, hey, they've like been willing to listen to offers on him at least so i mean like what do we think of dennis smith because i think dennis smith is just a fascinating player to begin with you you were very high on dennis smith in the 2017 draft i was higher than consensus i think on dennis smith but probably not quite as high as you are um yeah just like kind of generally where where are we at with how the dennis smith uh era is going here i think the hate has kind of gone a little bit too far like people like to troll him now especially because De'Aaron fox has taken that leap and it just takes a while for some of these point guards to really get acclimated i give dennis a ton of credit this year they started out the year as dennis is the primary and luca is the secondary and obviously they've inverted those roles because luca is just a better player frankly and i think that dennis has actually adjusted to that pretty well like he's defended a lot better this year he's made significant improvement there at least everybody saw the play last night against paul george at the end of the game where he contained and contested him he's been playing that hard defensively he's taking that energy of his past role being the initiator on offense and now he's not so he's exerting that defensively so i think that he deserves some credit for that if you read between the lines with this Dallas report, I think it makes a lot of sense for Dallas. They're not saying we need to trade Dennis, but they're saying we have a guy now. We have the guy. And at the end of the day, it's about optimizing Luka. If they feel like Dennis isn't that player, then they have to go out and get somebody who is. So I think they understand that if Dennis isn't the perfect fit, then they have to find somebody who is. And 
maybe they don't find that guy. Maybe they don't find a trade, but at least putting that on the market, that idea will maybe elicit some offers and they can better optimize Luca because right now Dennis is, in my opinion, more optimized as a secondary guy where he doesn't have to make all the decisions. He's kind of just playing the secondary creator. They're using him on Iverson cuts, getting to the rim. He's always been a pretty good catch and shoot guy. We've talked about that in the past. So again, I feel like the role is really good for him right now, especially if he's going to defend. But at the end of the day, they're doing everything they can to optimize Luca. That has to be their thought process. So, yeah, I agree with you on all of that. And I will note that, like, I actually think that this is a very good fit if they play Luca as the primary and play Dennis as, like, the secondary ball handler. Because this is yep. something that you and I talked about all the time. Like, anywhere that Luca has had success, he's had a secondary point guard next to him. Like, Goran Dragic with Slovenia. Um, anytime at Real Madrid, like, Facundo Campazzo was their point guard last year, right? Like, you can play, like dual ones kind of especially if that other one is gonna take on tough defensive assignments like dennis smith is apparently embraced like that i think that is the part of it that most surprises me is that like dennis is taking on and like accepting and being challenged by playing really good defense and that's not something he did often at nc state it's something his athleticism would indicate he would be very good at but it just hadn't happened. And the fact that he's doing it is very important. Um, you mentioned the fact that you think that Dennis is a little bit better as a secondary, especially next to Luca. I would agree with that. His turnover rate has been awful this year. He, he just really has made like poor primary ball handler decisions. Uh, his turnovers per game have jumped from 2.8 to 3.3, uh, while his usage rate has declined by five and a half percent, uh, 20 point nine assist rate or turnover rate right now i'm sorry for dennis smith jr that is way too high uh but here's the thing so you look through his numbers 66th percentile in catch and shoot shots again this is something that he's been good at in the past this is something that he has uh, always despite the shooting metrics uh, overall being questionable, something he's been successful with. If you look at his off-the-dribble jumpers, he's actually in the 83rd percentile this year, which is surprising. 80th percentile overall as a shooter. Um, while he is in the 20th percentile as an overall offensive player right now, according to Synergy, a lot of that has to do with A, the turnovers. That's the biggest part of it. But B, his he is at a remarkably and unsustainably low percentile in transition for what his athleticism is he is in the sixth percentile uh as a transition scorer right now uh finishing 44 percent uh field goal percentage in transition right now that is not gonna hold just for what the athleticism is for who he is that's gonna bounce i think um spot up guy 89th percentile that's really good so like he's doing all of the things that you would want a guy in Dennis Smith's shoes playing next to Luka Doncic to do. I, I kind of like it right now. Like I, I think it actually really works. I agree. And the, the point I made about optimization, I'm not saying Dennis is a bad fit. I actually think it's a very workable fit in yeah. these two roles. But maybe Dennis isn't the optimal fit. I think that maybe you yeah. look for somebody who's a little bit better of a defensive player, even though Dennis is trying. He's still not very good off the ball. Yeah. Uh, just looking long term, I think a lot of people have taken the Jalen Brunson thing too far. Like, oh, this guy's a perfect fit next to Luca. Like, I don't think he's athletic enough to guard some of these guys. Like, he's not Dennis Smith. Like, there's no way that he can t stay in front of Paul George and like force a pull up like that. So, yeah. I think that narrative has gone a little bit too far. But maybe you want a little bit better decision making if you're trying to build a title team, and that's ultimately what we're we're doing here. Because I think that the Mavericks have the guy. That's just my opinion. 
Um, I think the Mavericks feel that way. So if they are thinking that way, they're saying, what is the best possible player next to Luka? I don't know if that's Dennis Smith. Um, I, I do think the fit is workable, though, because of the steps he's made. If you watch Dennis at the beginning of the season, he was pretty aimless. There wasn't a lot of purpose in his game as the primary. He was just dribbling a lot. He just looked totally lost. And then yeah. when they flipped the roles and he started being the secondary guy where Carlisle could run an, an Iverson cut for him, and he's just having, like, two decisions to make. He's making yeah. quicker decisions and he's like driving kick passing i think he's improved a little bit there so it's just about finding a comfort zone and i think they have to use this time to really see can dennis function in this role especially if he's going to defend so i i've been pretty i i think i've been t- pretty taken aback in a positive fashion recently I, I was pretty i was like okay at the beginning of the season i was like dennis hasn't made that strides like if you compare him to fox which everybody does Fox makes much faster decisions. He just plays with such more purpose on the floor. Like that's the biggest difference between those guys. Yeah. But you put Dennis, you put Dennis in more of a scoring role where it's a secondary. You can make some reads. I think that's the optimal fit for him. Yeah, I agree with you. And with Dennis, we'll just kind of see where it goes now. I would not trade him uh, if I was Dallas. I would just continue to see where this goes. Um, you know, obviously you're going to get offers, and like, like I guess that like. What what is what does the Dennis Smith offer even look like to you, right? Like, because Washington is a team that like theoretically should be looking for younger players who uh, could potentially fit a longer term timeline. Uh, they have John Wall. They're not going to be looking to trade like Otto Porter for Dennis Smith, right? Um, yep. Like you know the Knicks. Like maybe you could like do something with the Knicks if they don't like like John Morant or if you think that. Um, there are some guys on their roster that you want both short and long term. Maybe that's interesting. Um, maybe like the Knicks would be willing to do something like Frank Nilakina plus something else for Dennis Smith. Like if you just really are Dallas and you believe in Nilakina's defensive ability next to Luka Doncic, like that that the archetype there fits. If not the player necessarily, I would still rather have Dennis Smith than Frank. Um, Chicago might make sense as well uh, is a place that has a young point guard. Uh, maybe you could go and get like see, but like I, I don't know what you even go get from Chicago. Like I, I don't <laughs> think you trade Dennis Smith for like Justin Holiday and Bobby Portis. You know, no, no. I and all those teams are on this list. I just created really quickly. I, there's been some people that have mentioned if the Pelicans go the Anthony Davis trade route, then maybe trying to move Dennis for like a Drew Holiday. Uh, if they can do a larger deal in that in that respect, I get the conceptual idea. Like, I love Holiday. He's, like, one of my favorite players in the league. But he turns 29 in June. You know what I mean? Like, you have yeah. to align the core with Luka. Luka's 19. Like, you can't trade for a 29-year-old. Luka, technically, I think he can, he can compete in the playoffs right now. But he's obviously not at his peak. So you have to kind of align your infrastructure with that. So that's a trade I wouldn't do. An interesting one is Orlando with Aaron Gordon. A, a larger constructive oh. deal there. Because I think Aaron Gordon's actually, this is not my original idea. I've I've seen this on Twitter, so it's pretty popularized right now. But I think that fit would actually be really interesting with Aaron Gordon next to Luka because he can kind of guard. You have two combo forward types, I guess, defensively. Like, they both have positional size. They can kind of switch and mismatch lineups. So that might be interesting because, of course, Orlando needs a point guard. Yeah, I think a lot depends on that, on what level you think Aaron Gordon is defensively. I do think he's better than what he gets credit for a lot of the time. Like, I think a lot of people consider him an overrated defender. Uh, He takes on really tough assignments for Orlando. Like he is the guy guarding the opposing team's best, like wing forward, like every single night. And I like that. Like, I think that that actually makes the most sense of anything I've heard yet. Yeah. And it's not optimal. Of course, because you still have Harrison Barnes and 
in theory, you'd probably move on from Barnes in that case. Uh, Barnes just kind of irritates me as a player. He has no drive and kick vision at all. Just a very unwilling passer. I'm not sure if Gordon's the optimal fit, but that's just one of the trades that makes the most sense. People are going to bring up Phoenix. I don't want to pair Devin Booker and uh, uh, Dennis Smith in the backcourt defensively. That's kind of the idea behind Point Book is you, like we talked about in the last podcast, you can go defensively and just yeah. have a bigger lineup. doesn't make a lot of sense for me. With Chicago, like, Dennis would make some sense. I don't really believe in Chris Dunn as a point guard, but like, what what do they really have that would interest um, Dallas outside of Wendell Carter, who I don't think that um, the Bulls would move for Dennis in that in that situation. So there's just not a lot. Like Detroit has nothing really to offer long term. It, it's it's hard to find a fit. Like especially if you're Dallas, you're like we're not just going to give Dennis Smith away. Like this, the fit is good enough. He's shown enough to where I, I would value the sample size of the rest of the season, maybe next year, over trading him um, for twenty cents on the dollar. It's actually would you trade Dennis Smith and their first round pick, not the Atlanta first round pick? So like the Dallas first round pick. Or no, 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 Dallas traded their first-round pick to Atlanta. I'm sorry. So yeah, top five projected, yeah. Pick. Yeah, I, I flipped that in my brain. Um, yeah, like, would you trade, like, a 2021 first in Dennis for Wendell Carter? I would, yeah. I, I think the two-man game with Wendell and Luka would be awesome. That's kind of a long-term fit that I could see really working out well. But, again, I don't think Chicago does that. I don't think so either. Um, I wonder if I would do that. I don't think I would. <laughs> I'm it's lower so tough, on, man. Yeah, I'm lower on Carter than most people are. I still don't think i would do that if it was a 2019 pick that like had a chance to be in the top 10 i would say maybe because then you'd actually get a chance to like actualize uh the value quicker as opposed to 2021 when you know dallas is probably going to be good with luca yeah i don't know it's tough um yeah and I, I would say just really quickly, I think Dallas would consider that just because, again, reports in the draft were that if they hadn't made that oh, they loved trade, Carter. they probably would have taken. They loved yeah. Carter at five. So maybe they value him higher than most teams, and they would part with Dennis plus a, a future first, potentially. I don't know. I don't really know how they currently value Dennis. I don't know how the league does. It's kind of like when you draft a player and he's not immediately impactful. How values that player on the trade market depends on what you consider what dennis's upside is i'm still a little wary of him going to a team like orlando and being the guy so that that's kind of where my reservations are i think he's much better in the role he is now but again relative to dallas that's not their concern they're not concerned about the avenue of dennis to luca it's more about does is luca optimized with dennis yeah um let's move on so the next thing that i have on the schedule here is i was just like watching who's i watching uh, I think it might have actually been Chicago with like their like just massive malaise of big men. And then like I looked at their <laughs> roster and I was like, you know, they have Wendell Carter, they have Lowry, they have uh, Bobby Portis, obviously. Um, Portis is out right now, but like his kind of situation made me think of things a little bit differently. Um, so the idea here that I was wondering is, are we underrating getting like, good young big men because you and i like hate drafting big men for the most part I, I think that marginally we're lower on drafting big men when we have the opportunity to right pretty much yeah i think there's a couple caveats but we'll get into that yeah like deandre ayton to me is a caveat because i just fucking think deandre is incredible <laughs> um you know jaron jackson is a caveat up there if you think jaron jackson like uh, cole certainly does and like i mostly do like i think jaron jackson's a future all-star if you think his guy is a future all-star i think you just take them but that's kind of not what I'm talking about, I guess. Like, I'm talking more about, like, when you get from, like, 16 onward down, is there value to just, like, getting an, a ready physically big man 
that you will have under long-term team control under an extremely cost-controlled number? Or do we just assume that big men can't really come into the NBA uh, if they're drafted 16 to 30 and play real minutes? Like, like uh, It's kind of like a half-cocked idea, as you guys can tell. <laughs> I so I have two kind of philosophies here. So I, I'm fine drafting bigs, but I think they have to have potential to be a difference maker in some capacity, whether that's defensively, uh, maybe like a top 15 big in the league, for whatever, however you want to define that. I think, of course, Aiton, Jaron Jackson, Wendell Carter, for me, uh, those guys satisfy that threshold. Mo Bamba, I mean, that's more high variance, but I think at his ceiling, we can all make the argument that he is impactful so those kind of guys are in one category and then as you work your way down the draft i think that they have to be at least guys who can impact the game immediately on their first contract i think there's value in that like locking up a jordan bell getting a montrez harrell on your roster like those kinds of guys who can just be that third big and maybe an energy big in this class we see guys like brandon clark uh grant williams like those kind of guys i think can make an immediate difference and getting them under cost control for you know three or four years potentially i think that does actually have value um yeah like a robert uh, williams this year for instance is a guy that like comes to mind for me exactly right and i think he has higher upside than that he's more in like yeah. to me the mitchell robinson I, I know you're a little lower on his starting uh, and that's like his starting outcomes. I think that's possible. So that's more of an upside play that I think actually has real upside. And this next class, maybe Jackson Hayes satisfies that threshold. But for guys yeah. that are up for developmental bigs, this is where I kind of differ from the consensus. Developmental bigs, like an Ikeana Bogu, for example, I didn't think had starter upside. So I'm yeah, not going to invest. I'm not investing draft capital in him because he's a, he's probably a second contract guy developmentally. You're not going to get any value or return on that first contract, and I don't think the upside warrants it. Yeah, like it almost has to be a, re- a big who is like ready to play immediately. Like Atlanta drafted Amari Spellman at the end of the first round here, right? Like I personally do not think that he's very good. Like I'm not an Amari Spellman guy. I had him outside of my yep. top 50. But if you do think Omari Spellman is good and you believe in the jump shot and you think that he can like make a ready-made impact, I understand it. Like, I, I guess that like, I, I understand getting a guy who can be a floor spacing big under team control uh, for four years. And then plus like, maybe you get his restricted free agency rights later. Um, like th- that, that is the kind of guy that I'm interested in. Like this draft, like I was trying to like think of who the analog is this draft. Like John, you're higher on Jonte Porter, but like Jonte Porter is someone who reasonably might go in the second half of the first round, right? Yes, and I absolutely think he has that kind of upside. Even if it's not a third big, like he, to me, he can be like a Kelly Olynyk kind of big. And I think Olynyk is one of the best backup fives in the league. Yeah, and like the other guy specifically that I was thinking of with this was Charles Bassey. Um, Bassey is definitely physically ready to play in the NBA. Uh, he is averaging like 15, 10 and like three blocks right now for Western Kentucky. Uh, if you believe that guy is physically ready, is it worth taking him at 27 thinking you're getting a backup center who can be a rim protector, rim runner and offensive rebounder? I mean, it's definitely a fair argument if you buy those skills and, and his ability is translating. Like, I'm a little less sold on his pop like his vertical explosiveness isn't great he's yeah. not a very dynamic leaper so for me i would favor a guy like brandon clark where i he's not as much of a straight five but i think he's just going to contribute like he's he can handle the ball you know he's really bouncy i think that the projection there is just a little bit cleaner and we've seen those energy bigs that are that have dynamic athleticism translate pretty well so for me i would kind of tend to shy away from bassy i don't really see legitimate upside 
upside there, even though he does flash skills all around. Like, we see him sometimes he dribbles. He, he has a little bit of shooting touch. I've seen some interesting passes from him. It just kind of depends on your evaluation, frankly. If you think that he has anything higher than the third big upside, I could see it maybe a little more justifiably. I'm not sure how much value his skill package really has, though, because he's not like a dynamic vertical spacer on a backup unit. Right. So, like, and then, like, you have to consider opportunity cost, right? Like, yes. Are, would you rather have him than Admiral Schofield? right like admiral schofield and grant williams like two guys that are six five long arms play across the front court kind of i guess is the way to put it um good defenders already particularly in schofield's case schofield's a shooter williams more of an attack closeouts floater has a lot of uh interesting or like incredible feel stuff really not even interesting feel stuff um like would you pass on bassy for those guys i think there are teams that would um or I think there are teams that would take Bassey over those guys. I still am at the point where I don't think I would. And I'm with you. I and mean, this kind of builds into the conversation overall, but the draft is a lot about positional value and scarcity as well. I mean, people want to make arguments against that, but that's just the reality of the circumstance. How many teams need wings in the NBA? Every single one of them. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you have to prioritize certain skill sets, when, especially when the bigs don't project to be either immediately impactful or have long-term, like, starter upside. Like, I, again, I love the Mitchell Robinson contract. I love the thought process in the second round. That's not going to happen every draft. You're not going to have Mitchell Robinson fall to 38 but for bigs with less upside like Bassey to me has significantly less upside than Mr. Mitchell Robinson I would yeah. prioritize wings and I definitely would prioritize wings and probably even like it's really interesting with backup point guards that that's where this kind of gets interesting for me is like if you think that Trey Jones is an impactful point uh, backup point guard let's say that that's a reasonable oh, yeah, projection like, which yeah. I would prioritize him I agree with you like I, I would prioritize Ty Jerome over him like and I think Ty Jerome's like more of a two than a one but yep. like you could probably have Ty Jerome run second units. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, this goes into what you can, the replaceability factor. So you yeah. can get a Kavon Looney last offseason. I think that he's a, you know, a valuable third big. Right. I, it's just really complex. Huge. Yeah, exactly. Right. Especially whenever. So like you look at the bigs that signed for the minimum. There are a ton of good bigs in Europe like that you can find for minimum ish contracts like Daniel Tice for instance, is a really good example of someone coming over from Europe. Tice, like, didn't have a crazy amount of hype in Europe. Like, he was a really, really good player. Uh, if I remember correctly, he won the German League's Defensive Player of the Year. But, like, he wasn't a, you know, like, guaranteed, like, million-and-a-half-dollar player in Europe, like some guys are. That's, like, kind of indicative of how easy it is to find bigs. Epe Udo is another example of a guy that like was really, really good in Europe who flamed out in the NBA for a little while, came back after developing his game. And then like Epe Udo is like a totally comfortable and solid NBA big. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. That's the point here overall. I think that there is a little bit of second contract value. If you take a guy who can help you immediately, Montrose Harrell is the best example of this. Like the market was very suppressed for his restricted free agency. And you can get a guy who, in my opinion, is like a low end starter. Like he's that good. But it has yeah. to be that kind of player, I think. Otherwise, you can you can go overseas. You can fill these guys in unrestricted free agency because there's just not a lot of demand right now. There's too many bigs unless you're a difference maker or you have like that long term starter upside or you are a valuable third big in via immediately and long term. I, I don't know what the what the demand is on the open market and how much we should be prioritizing that. Yeah. Like you can probably go get Johnny O'Brien 
uh, who is having a really good year over in the Euro League right now, averaging 11 points and like seven rebounds or six rebounds a night or something. Um, yep. Shooting threes, kind of doing what you're hoping for from someone like that. And you can get them for the minimum probably this summer. So like that's another part of all of this. Like it's it's at the point where you really uh, the opportunity cost is so strong with a lot of these guys with positional value that um, I don't think I am at the stage where uh, even though like I started this conversation, I just thought it was more of an interesting topic of discussion more than anything to kind of put into context like positional values um like i, I, I like i said like it was a half-cocked idea that i think turned out to be a reasonable discussion <laughs> yeah absolutely and i think just one more point for me at the top half of the draft and like we're talking about the elite prospects i'm not saying to devalue bigs to the point where if there are valuable bigs like actual good bigs like in the 2018 draft i'm not saying to knock those guys down because they're bigs you still have to take those guys if that's the draft and the draft is the value is in the bigs i think you still invest in those guys if they can be difference makers it's just when we're talking about you know lowering the draft when these guys aren't really impactful guys that's when i think you have to prioritize position uh a little bit more just because obviously like you prioritize luka Doncic if the wing is really good or the primary ball handlers really good at the top but that the conversation gets much more interesting to me as you work your way down the draft yeah like deandre ayton is fucking incredible he's averaging like 17 11 and 2 right now on 60 percent shooting from the field uh take that guy you know what i mean like at the very yep. least take him if you like you're lower on him uh you're uh, you have luka Doncic and jaron jackson ahead of him right now you would still probably take him number three in this draft right like something like that Let's not go into that. But yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's very, very arguable for sure. I'm, I'm not taking like a wing I had at 13 just because he's a wing over DeAndre Ayton. That, that's kind of what I'm, where I'm coming from. Right. So like DeAndre Ayton goes um, number one in the draft. Like you're not taking Mikhail Bridges over him. Like to actually talk about a nope. teammate, right? Like Mikhail Bridges goes tenth. He's having a really good rookie year. Um, you're probably like I'm not taking Shea Gilgis Alexander over him. Still, um, you're probably not taking Shea right over Aiden yeah no 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 that, yeah. that goes to your point exactly like I'm not taking these guys who might in theory I think you can make an argument that it's easier for them to be on a winning team just because of the demands defensively of, of a center but still I think you have to go with the upside and the better prospect so that kind of puts it in context yeah for sure um all right the last thing we're going to talk about before uh, I let the listeners out of here uh, at a svelte hour and a half um <laughs> year in like end of year 2019 NBA draft stuff. Um, I don't really think that maybe at the beginning of next year, we'll do our thing where like we look back on the, we've kind of did that last week though, where we look back on the 2018 draft and like kind of reassessed some things, you know, maybe we should do that on like an earlier draft at some point, but just to like kind of look through our process and like get better at this. But let's talk about the 2019 draft guys who have like really helped themselves thus far in the new year, really the draft season has been going for like six months, uh, despite the fact that these guys have only played like two months of real games, uh, just given camps, given all of the different things that they do uh, in front of NBA scouts. You know, maybe, maybe you could even say like this NBA draft season has been going for two years. If you want to go back to like Adidas Nations when Zion Williamson was there as a sophomore in high school. Right. Sure. Um, I, I don't know if we need to necessarily go that far, but who are some of the guys that you think helped their NBA draft stock for the 2019 draft in 2018. I think I have to start with Jarrett Culver. For me personally, like I was 
relatively high on him just because last year he was incredible as far as like as a freshman his IQ always popped for me uh, team defense he just really knows what to do on the floor good passer but for me the the overarching difference has been his tweaks and his shooting mechanics and that's something yeah. I noticed right away this season he's made improvements there if you remember last year his shot line was much further to the left he kind of brought it up and he would flick it across his face very awkward even sometimes he would finish his wrist would snap away from the basket so it was kind of like he was I don't, I don't want to say backhanding because that's not the right description but it was very much I, I didn't buy the shot it was like a worse version of Lonzo ball shot it didn't snap the same way either like Lonzo at least has alignment at the end of his release and this year he's made improvements there his pull-up actually looks decent he had that pull up over rj barrett he had one kind of one-footed fadeaway uh, dirk shot that you sent me via text so i think that he's made mechanical improvements there and that's really what i was looking for from him because he brings pretty much everything to the table uh our ben rubin on our site has a theory that he has grown and he's like six seven or he could get to six eight i'm not really sure the combine is going to be really fascinating for him but this is a guy who can really dribble pass and shoot and be a secondary ball handler depending on the shooting variance i don't think he's like a dynamic off movement shooter but he's shown enough shooting this year via shot diversity that i'm very intrigued oh sh- straight up i think he's grown like i think he has gotten taller uh texas tech has actually bumped up his height to six six um like i think he is actually just like bigger than he was last year uh i don't know if i would say six seven i think that might be stretching it but i think that like he is a legit six six looking at him now um you mentioned the pull-up ability i actually think he's like straight up a really good pull-up shooter now uh he's the moves that he makes are like legit nba moves where he will go like right to left crossover step back direct into a fluid jumper or like pump fake sidestep pull-up jumper um they're just really translatable moves and the numbers are backing us up on that, right? Like he's uh, 97th percentile on guarded catch and shoots and he's uh, making uh, one point per possession on each of his jump shots off the dribble this year, which is uh, about in the top one fifth of all NBA players or all college basketball players. I'm sorry. Um, he, he is just very good. And plus he's a very good defender. He's six, six, he's a wing. Um, I have him at like number eight or number nine on my board. I think that might be low. Like, I, I think that might be a little bit low. Uh, he's very good. He's really, really good. Um, to me, he's one of the five best players in college basketball this season. I agree with you. And I think that what you're getting with him is a little bit more certainty than a lot of these other prospects. Like, you can make an argument Kevin Porter Jr. is, is more talented. He's got way more live dribble game as far as his explosiveness in and out of his moves. Uh, Colbert doesn't really win that way. He's more deceptive with his handle. Kind of reminds me of Shea a little bit in that capacity only just because he wins with awkward change of pace. He does have a good handle. He's been very good in pick and roll this year. But I think the allure for him is, and this is a degree thing with the height. I agree with you. He's definitely gotten taller. The question is how much taller is he going to get? Is he 6'7"? Can he get to like 6'8"? If he gets to that level and you you have a guy that tall who can handle the ball and he really fills out his frame, I think you have a really intriguing prospect. So you're getting some upside with him just because how many 6'6", 6'7", guys do you find who can dribble, pass, and shoot? You just don't find that many guys in the draft. But he's also bringing a level to certainty to this class which really lacks it honestly there's so much variance at the top of this class as you yeah. get down to the latter half of the top 10 i think i would bank on this guy over most of these guys oh i'll be straight up honest like if, if you think he is going to get to six foot eight um which again i have no evidence of him like growing <laughs> to six foot eight but if you think he's gonna get to six foot eight you should take him third in this draft like straight up like you really should because he is uh just an awesome 
knockdown shooter at this stage. He actually knows how to defend on and off ball. Uh, he's like the perfect wing. And if you think he's six foot eight, then you're probably going to be able to guard fours with him at this stage. Like it, it's like he's a better prospect than DeAndre Hunter if you think he is getting to be as big as DeAndre Hunter. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of the argument for him in the top three because you see that shift a lot with a lot of draft guys. Is like he could be valued that highly if you if you value the upside. And again, my last point on him is he has legitimate feel. Like this guy knows how to fucking play basketball. And yeah. in this draft, that goes a long way. If we're looking at guys, because this is why I thought last year was so special, is because a lot of those guys really knew how to play and they caught they combined that with high skill level and, and like high intellect they met those thresholds this class not so much for most part but this guy definitely does like Culver's the real deal if you know the shooting is real which I expect this year I'm more confident and that's why I have him I think right now I'd probably take him you know upper half of the the lottery I just think that he's yeah. that good yeah I think that I would have him at like seven right now something like that Fair. um I'm writing about him for this week I've talked to him he's an awesome kid very very nice kid um you should go look for that on the athletic the guy that i quickly go ahead sorry i I gotta say really quickly on that duke game if you if people want to go watch that they had a really nice segment on him as far as like his film watching i think the sideline reporter i I don't remember her name but she reported all this and like he's a really avid film watcher they they talked about him for about a minute and it was about everything you'd ever want to hear for people on the outside like me who don't get you know interviews and stuff like that it was everything you want to hear about a prospect yeah uh, i talked to him a good amount about that as well uh that that'll come in the story he's he's very much a uh very much an avid film watcher very much like an awesome just like an awesome kid uh from lubbock like he yeah that's where i'll leave it you should go read the athletic later this week um (laughs) the guy i want to mention is john morant um john morant was a guy who i think nobody knew who he was outside of like extremely avid draft writers uh like when january started of 2018 uh he was if you look through his like freshman year numbers only him and lonzo ball have like done what they did as freshmen averaging like 13 six and a half and six and a half uh statistically and lonzo did it on like wild crazy pace and john morant did it on i think like a nation national average pace uh it's I talked to him at the NCAA tournament. I knew uh, how good he was then. Then I did not expect him to make the leap that he has in terms of his ability to take on like a full lead primary ball handling role where he is the guy who is the primary scorer, primary distributor, and like everything for Murray State. It's hard to argue with any of that. I mean, his usage this year has been unreal. I have not watched the Auburn game yet, so that's a pretty big input for me. I still got to oh that probably in the next, yeah, next couple games <laughs> or next couple days, I should say. So I don't want to chime in too into extreme of fashion. There's a lot to like here. Uh, this is more of a ph- philosophical debate as far as how good does a guy have to be offensively if you're that size. And I don't think that his athleticism is to the level that a lot of people do. I think he loses a lot of that in the half court. Like you see the explosive two foot leaping ability in space. Like he, he looks like really dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then you see him in the half court off one more in traffic and he loses a lot of that. And his strength is a really big negative in my opinion. So I agree with you on he loses explosiveness jumping off of one foot. 
But what I will say is he is very good at contorting his body. He has really good body control and he gets really good hang time. Um, he changes angles on rim protectors really well. And he goes straight into contact every time. Like that dude is totally unafraid of however big you are. He's going to go into your body and try and change the angle and finish under you, over you, wherever he thinks he can finish. So if you think you can get him stronger, then I think there's a real case to take him at like number four, or number five in the draft. Um, but I'm with you in that. I am like concerned about the fact that his frame is a real concern. His, uh, overall explosiveness in the half court at the basket is a small concern as well. And I think also the shooting is, I don't want to say it's And the turnovers. Yeah. Like there are concerns. I'm not really too like the overarching turnover number. Isn't going to, like draw me off of him just because of his usage like you said his role is like he has to do everything so some of the decisions he makes are the concern for me that's built into the turnovers of course and i'm not sure how quick he processes the game he does have very good vision very good craft we talked about trey young last year with those left-handed push passes uh jaw has that in his game already so that's and that's a positive they aren't but- even just like push push passes he will like cross court left-handed <laughs> pass like yep. a pass that like very few nba guards make um, one-handed cross-court like pick and roll whip pass with his offhand. It's crazy. Yeah, and, and that's something you need at that size, honestly, because you're not going to be able to pass over the top of guys like Luca does. You, you got to have in, in those tighter confines. If you have that pass going to your left, I think that's big. So there are some really big positives in this game. His handle's good. He's deceptive. You know, he's. He, I think you've talked about this with Chris Stone in the past. We don't have to rehash all of this. I just think that the pull-up gravity is going to be something really interesting. His release isn't dynamically quick. It's okay, but it takes a little bit too long to load. You've seen him get a shot blocked a couple times on step backs. He can create the separation as far as his step back ability, but the release is a little too slow for how low it is. Like It's not as quick as Darius Garland or Trey Young. That's going to matter, I think, a little bit. My primary concern with him, outside of like the decision-making, some of the finishing stuff with the strength, is that I don't think guys are going to guard him like a shooter, because I don't know if his pull-up is that dynamic yeah. he can he can make it but it's more in the, the sense of he can make it when guys duck under screens and he has a bunch of space and i don't think he has the reputation like that's something trey has people still guard him like a star shooter and i don't think that jaw's gonna get that treatment and that might negate some of his impact ability to get in the lane and like kick out and stuff yeah i mean like <laughs> how uh, how bad uh of a shooter is trey young right now unbelievable it's he's really better, just incredible last, last eight games he's like 38 39 from three and trey's a much better shooter than moran is like I'm right straight up and like, trey is much like better touch trey is a good shooter like i am he's streaky but like he's a good shooter like i'm not worried about trey eventually getting to like a good level of shooting it's just like crazy that this is where we're at right now with him um <laughs> oh it's been crazy all year but yeah that's my primary concern with moran it's like i'm not sure how good his touch is i'm not saying it's bad it, it seems okay he's got the good free throw percentage mark which people point out but i've gone back and looked over his floaters we've talked about this on the past podcast yeah. as far as touch goes and i think he's four of 24 on floaters over this two seasons so just uh, just one number it's very small sample size but i think some of the shots he puts up show maybe not advanced touch it's still respectable so the shooting is going to be it for him because if people don't have to guard him that way he's, he's going to take things off the table defensively he's not a good defensive player and i don't know how he's going to be like he has the length in theory but I, the strength is to me really really important with these smaller guards and he doesn't have that yeah he's good at getting to passing lanes like i think he actually does have like good instincts uh for forcing turnovers and forcing live ball situations uh, in transition but that's not enough 
really. Like you just need to be better uh, overall as a team defender, especially if you're going to be that small. Like Ty Jerome doesn't have the quickness that uh, John Morant does, but where Ty Jerome gets by is that he's an incredibly smart team defender who also um, is incredibly disruptive with his hands when he's on the ball. Like it's not like he's just going out and forcing turnovers uh, by sprinting out into passing lanes and trying to, uh, you know, potentially give your defense a bad on or bad uh, disadvantage situation. He is good at like uh, just getting mirroring your hands as an offensive player and getting a steal that way or just making your life more difficult. Sure. And he's bigger than Moran. I think that really matters. The size and the strength that that that's impactful. But overall, I think no matter what you think about Moran, he's clearly risen this year. I, he's being considered yes. now in the top five. And, and that's kind of the takeaway here is like some of these guys, maybe we deviate a little bit from consensus on. I can't speak for you, but I'm not as sold on him as a top five guy as a lot of people are right now. Yeah, I have him at like number six on my board. And okay. I think that like if you compare him to last draft, he goes probably late lottery, something like that. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I would like. I think I like him more than I like Sexton, but the same overarching issues, like much different players, of course. But the same, yeah. it's a philosophy question. Just how good you have to be offensively to really invest in long term at that position when you're taking things off the table defensively. Like I still would have, I still would have taken Shea over him. I think. Um, oh yes. And I probably would have. T- like I had Miles Bridges at eight. Uh, I think I probably would have taken Miles over him too. Hundred percent. So like that, that's more the player that we're talking about, I think, as opposed to like a guy that is like an incredible, like franchise changing point guard right now, in my opinion, at least we'll see how the rest of the year goes. Um, I'll, I'll mention Ty Jerome. Like, I think Ty Jerome's really helped himself this year. Uh, the fact that he is playing defense at such a high level, the fact that he's shooting 43%, the fact that he's so good coming around screens and getting separation like that stuff all matters. Easy to fill role for him at the pro level as far as utilizing his off-screen gravity as a shooter. Uh, very smart player, can make a read. Uh, not dynamic as far as getting to the rim. Lacks explosiveness. That's his main. If he was more explosive, it would be a, a much easier projection for him. But very high IQ player um, who really just gets it and can shoot the ball off movement. If he's going to thrive, I think it's probably going to be in like a bigger point guard role next to another like initiator so the Sixers took him and he plays next to Ben Simmons I think that's kind of the the fit you're looking for with this kind of player yeah the same with like Nikhil Alexander Walker um yes you know the same same player type I think Nikhil probably has a little bit higher of a ceiling because I think he's much better in pick and roll situations getting all the way to the basket um maybe a slightly worse shooter despite what the percentages say right now um but like same same kind of player type. I think Nikhil's probably more of like a potential starter, whereas Ty is like more of a backup. I think that's definitely fair. Nikhil has risen a little bit too high, in my opinion, just because you saw you see the advancement in his game this year as far as on the ball. Well, I'm not where sure is where project- is too high for you first? Let me start there. I think some some people have him like lottery level, and okay. that's like a little bit. That's a little bit high for me just because I look at his defense and I know he tries and he's pretty good in college, but his frame it just leaves a lot to be desired for me. The six five guard, it's just not meeting that threshold of safety that, that I like. And I don't see the upside as being something like outstanding. Like, he's good craft. You know, he's a smart player. His shot, it seems pretty functional. But overall, I just don't know how well those kinds of players translate to the NBA. Yeah, so I've got him at like 20 right now. Um I tend to believe in guys that are excellent shooters, which he clearly is, I think, and combine that with terrific ball handling ability um, at like size. You know what I mean? Like he's 6'5 with a 6'10 wingspan 
and is a 40% three-point shooter and can play pick and roll. Like at the very least, I feel like that is a backup secondary ball handler. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. I get the argument for him. I just don't know if he really plays to that size consistently. Like, I get the measurements, but I don't know against NBA athletes who are bigger. I, I don't know how functional his size really is. Like, he's a bigger point guard, but I don't know if he plays like it. Like, to me, D'Anthony Melton's shorter, but he plays to his size much more than... It's really hard to be a good defensive player in the NBA if you are that, you know, if you have that frame. So that's my knock on him is like, I get the offensive appeal. He is smart. I'm not sure about like the deceptive handling. Like he's not super explosive in and out of his moves. You're looking at him as more of a shooter who can handle a secondary pick and roll. So th- that has appeal. Um, is he going to finish at the rim? He's got good craft. He's got a great left hand, but is it going to really translate to the level that you'd think? I just think some of the people are getting a little bit too high on him, but like latter half of the first round, I get the argument more. It's just not like my favorite kind of player to invest in. Yeah, no. And I get that. I will say, I think that he looks a lot better. Uh, this year in terms of his frame. Last year, I thought he was way too skinny. This year, he's at like 205 pounds. He looks like more sturdy. Maybe sturdy is the way to put it. Um, He doesn't look like he's going to get blown over by a strong wind. So that's nice. (laughs) Um, So like overall, I actually think that I am, I'm not in lottery level like some people are you think like apparently um but i i guess like we're kind of similar on this right like it seems like yeah and especially maybe you're again, a little if you're, lower if you're viewing him that same role of like kind of the de facto point guard but not really like you're just you're playing the one defensively maybe i i, I get that a lot more if you're going to play him on the wing i don't know if you're going to get that return on investment like the, the thing that i like about him is you bring some playmaking and you can incur that size at the one but if you play him on the wing i, I don't know how valuable he really is Casey Apollo is the next guy for me. Um, I think he is like definitely a top 20 guy in this class. Um, he okay. can actually shoot now, which is a significant change from what like, like I talked to Pac-12 coaches last year uh, about him. Like part of the reason that Stanford struggled last year when he started playing was they would genuinely just sag off of him. They'd be like, fuck this. This guy can't shoot like, we're going to pack the paint. We're going to force Dejan to beat us from the outside. We're going to force Casey Apollo to beat us from the outside. And we're going to do, do it that way. Right. With Apollo now, like he's shooting 49% on three, three point attempts a game. And the shot actually looks good. Like mechanically, it, it's totally changed. If he is a six foot eight playmaking four who can shoot at like a 37% clip from the NBA line, he's a top 20 pick just straight up. Not a direct comparison, but I'm just curious on your thoughts on this. How do you view him compared to Chandler Hutchinson? Um, I think he's, oh man, I think he's better than Chandler, actually. Okay. Because I buy the jump shot more. Interesting, yeah. I, I mean, I'm kind of intrigued with some of the playmaking flashes he's shown. Like, he's pretty comfortable with the ball. I'm not saying he's like a, a court, like even a secondary guy, but he blew by Nasir Little. I haven't watched him in a while. I watched him a little bit in the beginning of the season, but he had some appeal there. He's a pretty good athlete. Um, I agree with you. The shot off the catch actually looks pretty fluid, but not someone who has a, a ton of shot diversity. You look, you look at his pull-ups, one of no. nine. You look at his off-screen. He has, doesn't have a lot of usage there. To me, if I was going to buy him high, I would want him to be like an off-movement shooter. I think that would be the intrigue there, unless he's like this defensive stopper. It kind of just goes into what your idea of his defense is. Yeah, and it's a really good question what his defense is, because on the plus side, for what his like future projection is, Stanford plays him nonsensically at the three a decent amount um yeah. like he is six foot eight with a seven two wingspan and he is playing the three uh occasional not occasionally like he splits time between the three and the four but like it is it is a thing that he plays the three and that is insane like they'll 
the off movement stuff where you see him occasionally off of movement is you'll see him like pick and pop uh sometimes which is interesting but it's not quite the same in terms of off movement is what you and i talk about when we talk about shooting off of movement um yeah so far this season he's taken 21 catch and shoot shots he's in the 96th percentile um pretty good finisher at the basket not like the world's most explosive leaper but again when you're six eight with a seven two wingspan and you can like actually attack closeouts and do the things that he is capable of it like it, you can just kind of make that work at the nba level uh with that kind of size and length so i don't know I, I think it's very interesting i think he is like if you believe in the defense and you believe that he is a good perimeter defender on fours i think he is like straight up a top 20 pick yeah i get the rationale for sure um can he protect the rim from the weak side that's something you look for for fours yeah. is he gonna be phys- physical enough on a lot of these guys he just seems kind of like a, a tweener type between the three and the four which in the modern game isn't a bad thing necessarily just not quite as sold i like his ball handling ability like i said decision making is going to be something i'll look for you know negative assist turnover ratio that i'm looking at so not the best there for like kind of a wing four playmaker yeah. type but i did like i did like the handle um he flashed some passing but i i, I don't know about the decision making yet i haven't seen him in probably a month or so so definitely someone i'm going to go back over i get the intrigue uh i just don't know if he's really the player that a lot of people describe him as yeah and like the other big like question is is how does the body fill out most people that i've spoken with like believe the body is really going to fill out like they think he is going to be like 6 8 240 pounds 72 wingspan like just massive like human being who is a full stop four that can shoot threes at the next level I, I don't know what to think of that yet i think that's a lofty projection but if you think that that's where it, i mean if you think that's where he gets to and you think he can retain all of the ball handling stuff he's a lottery pick but like i don't i don't know yet what to do with that yeah that's the guy we're talking about then i'm very very interested in him if he can really fill out and you can play the four and you bring that kind of handle and, you know, he can switch a little bit on defense. I'm, I'm a fan of his perimeter defense. We'll see about the interior as far as rotations and stuff over the rest of the season. But if that's the guy that we're describing, I don't even think he has to shoot off movement in that case. If he's like a straight four and that big and he can handle these more physical interior guys and then give you that plus perimeter skill on the other side, then we have a real player. Yeah. So we'll see how he develops the rest of the year. I'm going to see him live this week uh, in the first uh, first non-Steve Alford UCLA game. So that'll be fun. Um, there you go. Who, who are a couple other guys that you want to mention? I've kind of jumped all over the board in, in terms of guys that I like. Yeah, Ignaz Brozdekas is someone I think we have to bring up just because I've been pretty impressed with him. Someone I saw at the Hoop Summit, and I was like, okay, he's kind of interesting. The general takeaway was I wish this guy was Dario Saric's size just because you yeah. can see it more at the four. Uh, I, I'm not saying I'm totally bought in yet, but I do like some of the things I've seen. Very, very polished as far as his off-ball scoring game. Very good cutting instincts. I mean, I know yep. some of that's Michigan's offense, but he really knows how to move off the ball and find spots. Very polished as far as footwork. You see him catch on the hop pretty much every time for a shot. Very aggressive in catch-and-go situations. I've been impressed there. He's a better horizontal athlete than I thought he was. I, he, we knew about the power game. You know, when he can load up off two, he's he's relatively explosive. He's got that power. But I, I've been impressed with some of the lateral quickness, both defensively and initially on these drives. I, I think he separates a little bit better than I gave him credit for. Yeah, I think I actually agree with you on that. I think that he is a better athlete than what I thought he was. He is a better defender than what I thought he was like he's actually okay as a freshman as a team defender right now like he's in the most sheltered situation that you could possibly ask for right (laughs) like 
John Teske is a really good defender. Charles Matthews is like one of the five best wing defenders Insane. in college basketball. Uh, Xavier Simpson, I think, is the best uh, perimeter defender as a or lead guard defender in college basketball. Uh, you know, the, the situation he's in uh, schematically with Luke Yaklich teaching and doing everything that Yak does up there, like he it is the best possible situation for him defensively. But. I think it's worth mentioning that he performs their scheme to a level that I was not expecting him to be able to perform it this season. Um, in terms of his shooting, that is all translated 43% from three, 50% uh, overall, 51% overall. I'm sorry that I, I uh, cut him off one there. Uh, 77% from the line. He's been very good. I think he is genuinely a top 50 prospect in this class. Yeah, and I might honestly have him higher at the end of the year. I just think that when you get a guy that size, and he's re- he's already filled out. You don't have to worry about the frame. Like he's strong. He's kind of a bull. And if he can really shoot, I'm looking most at the shooting off movement. We haven't really seen that. He's only had four attempts, zero for two. Uh, we haven't seen if he can really come off a screen and set quickly and shoot. That's going to be the most interesting skill to monitor for him moving forward. Because I kind of buy. I don't know if he's like ultra ultra switchable as far as like the quickest feet but he's impressed me more on that end where i would kind of just bank on his frame and the fact that he can really score in advantage opportunities you don't have to run plays for him necessarily unless it's like off screens he's more of a guy who's just going to siphon off baskets over the course of a game that you won't really notice but i think he can be pretty efficient doing that if he can shoot the ball off movement and, and shoot at a high level you know what else he's really he's a really good offensive rebounder for like a guy who crashes off the wing like that too um, yeah, he gets like a lot of like little random like tip in opportunities, but he also like he's also smart about when he takes the opportunities. You know what I mean? Like he takes his chances well uh, going toward the basket and crashing for offensive rebounds and doesn't like doesn't overshoot that, I guess, is my point. Exactly. And that just goes into the overarching kind of off ball instincts role. He just looks, again, really polished compared to a lot of these freshmen. I was kind of taken aback. I know the Michigan situation is a very cushy situation, but even on the tape, he just kind of pops as far as just his ability to get baskets and his awareness of like, spatial awareness off the ball. He, I think he just really gets it. Yeah, I agree with you. Um uh, you like the Tennessee guys like I do? Should we talk about the Tennessee guys? Sure. I mean, we mentioned I, I mentioned Grant Williams a little bit. I've been in really – I mean, he's one of the smartest players I've seen all year. And those kind of guys, like last year, is kind of Kenridge Williams. I, they're not similar players like that similar. But just those kind of guys typically pop when you watch the tape. Like, he, they're just – you know, they make really good decisions and you can just see the consistency. You don't see the wheels turning. And I think Williams has added a little bit to his shot. I don't mind his mechanics, honestly. I'm not sure if they translate to NBA three necessarily, but I, they're pretty clean. And he's had some pull up jumpers that are really interesting. If you play him at the four, maybe he can make plays there. He's not the most dynamic athlete, but just I think he can go a long way with a guy who I believe in the foundational mechanics. He's super young for his age group or his, his year, which is crazy. I had no idea he was that young. So yeah. I, I think there might be a he's little still bit more 20, right? There. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah, he, I agree with you. I think there's real upside as a shooter still. Um, we talk about like the floater, like runner touch stuff, or at least we've started to do that over the course of like the last few weeks. Um, he's a guy, I don't think that like synergy captures all of his floaters. I think that they qualify some of them as like jumpers, uh, cause they're like these weird kind of push shots. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But like he definitely has that to his game like it statistically like I, I don't know that i need to really even like look at the numbers on it he just like we we've seen it we know that he naturally has that like kind of push floater shot yeah and he's not he's, not, he's actually three for three this year so not a big sample but you can like you said you can kind of see that on tape he's got really good touch 
a little bit of upside as like a difficult shot maker type at the four. Um, I think he's mostly going to be a four. He, he's going to be switchable enough to where maybe the strength, he can switch onto some small ball fives, maybe some threes. But yeah, some, some untapped ups- upside there for a prospect that a lot of people probably wouldn't attribute that to. Yeah, and like I have him like borderline like end of the first round right now. Do you have him in the first round? I do. Yeah, like I, I think that like we're not going crazy here. Like we're not like full on calling him a lottery pick, but like I really like him. And if you look at the statistical stuff in terms of his profile, like every player who has done what he's does what he's done production wise has gone in the first round. Yep. And I think that's a point that Ben Rubin made again. Uh, one other stat, 2.1 assisted turn- turnover ratio in the half yep. court, which I think is really impressive. Like that's, I mean, that's indicative of what, you don't, you don't have to just put all your eggs in the assisted turnover basket, but you can see that manifest on the floor pretty clearly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And then Admiral Schofield, I just think like NBA stars are going to love playing with that dude. That dude will like, uh, like I had one scout tell me like, he thinks that that guy will like fight like for his teammates like he will (laughs) like genuinely get into like a scrap if he thinks his teammates are being disrespected like that stuff is like things that nba player nba players and nba stars particularly love he's a 39 to 41 percent three-point shooter in college i think although like he takes all of his threes right behind the line for the most part uh this year he's extended out a little bit i'll say that but like the first the last couple years it's been like right at the line and that's a little bit scary um but he's also an awesome defender, really, really tough defensively, uh, really uh, switchable across three positions, two through four. Uh, you can slide. He can slide like a couple slides with guards. He's physical enough to body up with centers in mismatch situations because he's like six foot five, 240 pounds. His brother was O'Brien Schofield, who was a linebacker at Wisconsin, uh, played in the NFL for a few years for your Seattle Seahawks, if I remember correctly. Remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so has that kind of mentality. Uh, I I love him as a role player. I have him as a first round pick right now. Um, just kind of a perfect fit for the way the NBA is going. I'm not quite there yet with him, but there is some intrigue. He flashes that off movement shooting. He has that kind of balance. He hasn't been super efficient at it this year, but I like seeing that in this game. I'm not as sold on the perimeter skill yet. Uh, the decision-making hasn't really been there consistently. It's not bad. It just doesn't really, it's not like Grant Williams level for me. So he hasn't jumped off the screen in the same way, but I'm going to watch him a lot more as the season progresses. I definitely get the intrigue though. I mean, you're talking about someone who's 6'6", so the 240 pound, uh, pound frame who can shoot the ball. And it, like that's going to have some value. Like I think he, he definitely gets drafted, right? Oh, no question. Like I, I have yeah. him at like 24 right now. Um, that's higher than NBA teams that I've talked to for sure. Uh, most NBA teams have him as a second round guy. Uh, I, I straight up think that like that is a guy I want to go to like battle with. Uh, I, I'm, if, if I take him at 24 and I miss on it, that's fine. He's going to work his ass off. He's going to be an incredible teammate. Like people who like have been around that program, they talk incessantly about how hard he has worked to get to where he is skill wise. Uh, just like, he's just the guy that I want to bet on, I guess. Like I'm, I'm comfortable just betting on Admiral Schofield, figuring it out and doing what he wants to do. Makes a lot of sense. And from that description, I'd be really surprised then if he got to the latter half of the second round. Like I think a team will probably take the, the gamble there late or early first or sorry, early second round. Um, one more guy to bring up for me quickly for Tennessee is Eve Pons. I'm not really sure what the hell Eve Pons is, but he's one of the best athletes in college basketball. Uh, when he's engaged defensively, like he's got legit difference making on ball athleticism. He, you know, the, we, we are for sure defense. the preeminent Eve Pons podcast. 
This is like Zaire Smith 2.0 here with Eve Bonds. But uh, I do think there's still, I'm not sure, like he doesn't really think the game quickly. I don't, I don't know about the skill level, of course. But for a developmental guy, I'm kind of intrigued with him as like a G League guy. I think he is uh, at least a year away. Sure. Like get, let him stay in college for a year. Let's see where we are in the 2020 draft. I think that's the reasonable response, but I've never been one to be reasonable. So <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I like him. He's, he's just kind of one of those bigger kind of combo forward types that just have supreme athleticism. I just don't think those guys come around that often. So I would invest a little bit here. I'm not saying, I mean, if he came out this year, do you think he'd even get drafted? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say there is a chance because I think you might be able to convince him to like be a stash in Europe. And there are like just not a lot of those this year, like to where it might be valuable for an NBA team to say, hey, we'll take you. Um, We're not going to use a two way on you immediately. We're going to set you up in Europe uh, in a good developmental situation and we'll check back in with you in two years. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I People should definitely watch Tennessee. Like they're they're a really really fun team to watch. If you haven't seen that Gonzaga game, that might be my favorite college basketball game of the season so far. It's up there. It is definitely my favorite college basketball game of the season. The next guy really might be the last guy. I'll throw it to you one more time after this guy. But Jackson Hayes is fascinating to me. I don't know what the fuck Jackson Hayes is. Like he's definitely a center, obviously, <laughs> and like a rim runner, and he like blocks a shit ton of shots. But like he's Part of me likes him like slightly more than Daniel Gafford. And then like part of me likes him like he's just a lot less productive and like he's a lot lower usage than Daniel Gafford, too. So like and like I definitely don't think he's the shooter Gafford was last year. Uh, so like I, I don't know. What, what is Jackson Hayes? <laughs> this was the last guy on my list as well. So and this kind of ties into the conversation we had earlier about bigs and how you go about evaluating them contextually. I don't know either. I mean, what I like about him is that he's enormous. Like, he actually has legit center size in this class. Like, he might get to the point where he's as big as a Steven Adams type. I'm not saying he's going to be that kind of player, obviously, because Adams has supreme toughness, and Hayes plays a little bit smaller than I'd like to see from that guy. But you look at his frame, like, this guy could probably carry 260 pounds, and he has a 7'5 wingspan, something like that, and nobody else has that in this class. So if you're looking for a developmental big long term, I, I don't... Like, his instincts aren't bad to me. Like, he's a very late bloomer, was was a football player. He doesn't do things on the floor that really irritate me, but he doesn't really do a lot on the floor for Texas. Like, every time on offense, he just basically sets a screen and dives to the rim. Sometimes he doesn't even look for the ball until he's already around the basket. Like, you can see his role is very rehearsed. But defensively, he makes the rotations. He's not, like, a super bouncy athlete. He's good, but his movement skills are elite for his size. Like, he really runs the floor well. I, I think Jackson Hoy, who writes for the Stepping as well, just posted this clip of him in transition, handling the ball, and then he had a step around move and a layup and stuff. Like his movement skills are, are really good for his size. It's just a question of how much time do you really want to develop? Like where do you think he is developmental, developmentally compared to like a Jared Allen type? Definitely not as far along as Jared Allen was. Um, I agree. Like Jared Allen had much better defensive instincts in terms of rotating weak side. Uh, Jared Allen. I don't know if he had. I think Jared Allen probably had like better reaction in terms of his hands. Like Jared Allen's hands are unbelievable. That guy catches fucking everything. Um, he's just a yeah. little bit more able to like do things with the ball too. Like Jackson Hayes. I, like you mentioned, like him, like you know, doing stuff in transition with the ball occasionally. But like in tight situations, he doesn't 
like he's just never asked to do that stuff uh yeah if i remember correctly he was like six foot as a freshman in high school and then i think he was like six six even as maybe like going into his junior year even so this like 611 height is new he was a football player like you said like he was uh archbishop moeller in cincinnati football player like on track to go like division one in football from what i know and now he's like a six foot eleven guy with a seven five wingspan, <laughs> bouncy as shit athletically. I mean, I think his dad is his dad's like on a football staff somewhere, isn't he? I, I can't remember from that story. I want to say he was affiliated with Cincinnati somehow. Um, I'm not positive. Maybe that's his coach. I can't remember what his affiliation to that was, but yeah. I like his hands a lot too. Like that's something you know about Jaron Allen. Yeah. I really like Jackson Hayes' hands. Like he catches basically everything. Maybe not to the level of Allen, but it's very, very good. It's well, just he, kind he of a, a tight end, slight. if I remember correctly. That, he was, he was like that makes a, a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> so like yeah he is he's fascinating he's just kind of a blank slate to me when i look at him i don't see any bad instincts like th- we have to differentiate him from a guy like marquise chris who was a football player but you could see really bad instincts on the floor like his foul rate he just didn't know what to do hayes doesn't strike me as that like his reaction time might not be elite but it's not terrible like he still makes the rotations he can test shots it's just a very very limited role that he's in like he doesn't he's not asked to do that much texas we, we've known that with their bigs they're not really asked to do a ton of passing you know, he's made some interesting passes to me. I don't know how to evaluate that decision making. Bottom line is like, what do you really do with this kind of player? Because we haven't seen anybody quite like this. Like, I think he moves well in space for sure. He has lateral agility. I'm not sure if he's a switch guy, but he does move his feet well. And there's a very projectable role for him as like a rim runner type. Uh, it just depends on how much time you have to develop someone like this. It's going to take a situation, again, referencing Allen and Brooklyn, some patience. But I do think he's one of the few guys in this class that has legit center size. Maybe the only one that has legit center size and length. And then I see some upside with. Yeah, I had him at like 30, 31, 32 on my board, something like that. I don't know. i mean like most nba like executives were like yeah he'll be a first round pick at some point um we'll see like what he wants to do at the end of the year but like if he comes out he probably goes in the first round like i think that an nba team just is like sure oh i totally think he will because you again with him you actually see the physical tools and the upside and i I do think the teams are going to give credit to the fact that his instincts aren't broken like he seems just like he's yeah. new to the game he's one of those guys where you think you can mold to it just comes down to again you're going to develop this guy over time and how much time do you want to invest in that because he could be a second contract guy but i do think the upside is there if you really need a center i, I think this is where you go i don't know where the hell that is in the first round i don't know how to value him really because again you have to factor in all these different variables but i do like a lot of what i see going to be really interesting to watch him over the rest of the season because i watched some games earlier this year against like michigan state um and, and like he's still really really raw it's it just you want to see every bit of him as far as what he is asked to do in the post how good his touch is you know can he his free throw shooting is okay it's a pretty mechanical jumper but all of those little things nba teams have to see and just see how he progresses as he gets more comfortable because we're dealing with someone who hasn't played a lot of basketball in his career yeah he just started his first game uh on the 28th against texas arlington um i would imagine that that probably continues going forward uh, he is yeah just bizarre player in a lot of ways to still figure not a bizarre player but like just a very <laughs> tough player to figure out still cole this is a two-hour podcast now why does hey, this always happen brand, with man. us it's too brand. It's too, it's too brand for us. What, what do you expect at this point? Like we say, we're not going to, but it always ends up happening. We end up talking about Jackson Hayes for you know five six minutes. Oh my god! Uh, tell the people what you've got going on in your life. 
Uh, I'm going to actually, I, I mean, my life is pretty, it's okay. I mean, it's the holidays, man. It's been interesting. Uh, I will say I have one complaint in that I hate when it gets into the thirties in Seattle and it's there right now. And it's just absolutely, I, I just can't go outside. I hate it. But, um, as far as content goes, I'm going to have a piece up for the Stepian sometime this week, hopefully later in the week about touch. Some of the stuff we've talked about on this podcast, some really interesting cases like Darren Fox, for example, we talked about, I went back and looked at his stats, his runner stats in college, and they're elite. I think I sent you this on Twitter. But uh, I'm going to kind of go deeper into that aspect of the draft. And as always, continue to listen to this podcast. Yeah, for sure. Um, for me, I'm going to write about Jarrett Culver later this week. I wrote about, uh, by the way, I wrote like a huge thing on Nasir Little, and we didn't even talk about that. Like, I, oh, like, yeah, North, I like North Carolina fans, like in my mentions, just like yelling at me for some random reason um <laughs> a lot of them were like hey this is like the most reasonable rational like national media thing i've seen on the nasir little situation then the others were like roy is our god like we need why are you doubting the greatness of roy williams who's won three national titles i'm like because eh. like these guys should be doubted sometimes like they're none of them are infallible like i've gone after k at some point this year i've gone after roy like it's only a matter of time until I go after Bill Self at some point. Like, and I think Bill Self's fucking amazing. I think they're all fucking amazing. So, like, uh, this is this is where we're at in my life right now. Uh, Jared Culver will be up at some point this week. Go read the thing on Nasir Little and Cam Reddish and just context in general with evaluating NBA prospects. Um, we'll be back later this week. We'll do something else at some point. But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.